Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. salvation first time listeners turn on tune in and drop out this is a very different kind of show a place where we don't feel so alone let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe i do admire you for your curiosity live and direct joining me this evening is jennifer stein and of course mike hideous after the break dr paul cottrell makes his return Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again, on a night like this. Hello to you in the chat room. I'm glad you're alive. It's been quite the week. My town of El Centro also has called for an emergency. Four people tested positive for COVID-19. California under strict lockdown. Welcome to the new normal, boys. Oh my goodness. We have been talking about this for a long time here. And people thought we were fear-mongering. Listen, I'm not here for that. I don't really sugarcoat anything. Everything that we have talked about, me and Dr. Paul Cottrell, has in fact come to fruition way ahead of the mainstream media. I'm not proud of that, by the way. Listen, there's no way around this. These are extremely dark times. But we have faced adversity time and time again. And here we are. Don't let this break your spirit, boys. We definitely will prevail. Now, Peter Robbins was going to be here, but he is not feeling so well. And Jennifer will talk about that here in a moment. I'm just glad to see all of you out there. Be safe. 
Now let's bring in Mike and Jennifer Stein. Mike and Jennifer, are you guys out there? Yes, we are. Mike, are you out there? I'm here too. There you are. Okay, I'm glad you guys are here. I was just talking about Peter Robbins and how he's been feeling. I'm not sure if he's sick or not, but Jennifer, you do have an update for us. Um, I, I don't think Peter is really sick. He is just, um, sort of taking an emotional sabbatical from what's going on in the country. <laughs> Having just been at a conference last weekend with Nick Pope, I think in North Carolina or Kentucky, something like that. I think he just needs to take a back seat, take, take a step back or the back seat or the back burner, as you might say, and just attend to his own personal affairs. As far as I know, he's not sick, but, uh, I think the psychological impact of realizing that he may very well have been exposed over the past weekend at a conference is, I think, a little uh, frightening to him. So, um, yeah, it's pretty he, so. Yeah. yeah, I think he just needs to take a deep breath. <laughs> I think all of us uh, need to. As far as I know, as far as I know, he's fine physically. Well, that's a good sign. And Mike, are you holding up okay out there? Uh, uh. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little frustrated with everything that's going on. Um, I feel like uh, I got to tell you, I mean, even though I'm not, I feel like I'm in jail. I, I feel like I'm serving a sentence um, of house arrest. And well, that's like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I mean, feel that way. You don't feel I, that way. I understand many, many people do. You know, it's I just it, it, go it's ahead, just Mike. alarming. That's all. It is alarming. No doubt. I think people are starting to realize that this is a pretty serious issue now. I'd yeah. say so. Yeah. Yeah, lots yeah. of people didn't I, think I, so at first, but now the reality has synced in for many Americans out there, unfortunately. Right. Well, yeah, I think, I, I, you know, I've got my hopes up high. Maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I'm just thinking positively, but I think um, based on what I heard on Thursday uh, when the president did a, a press conference, and I think I mentioned this to you. It might have been before that, but because uh, I, I think I mentioned it to you, Michael, uh, maybe it was Monday. But I think they said um, they may have a possible cure that they're working with or, or vaccine, I should say, that they're working on that's been around for 40 or 50 years, maybe longer. And um, so I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed that whatever that vaccine is, it works. Oh. Yeah, what I've heard is that they know that the um, the vaccine for malaria tends right. to be effective, and that's been around for a long time. That's but, the one they mentioned. Yeah, the Israelis have uh, are hard at work on a on a vaccine. Um, they're very in, in innovative in many ways. So um, there's a there's a good chance we may see something soon. But usually vaccines take a good year to year and a half, you know, to develop. Right. I see. Especially I, with a with a, a flu virus. You are referring to that malaria drug. Uh, I think it was called hydro. D. Yeah. Don't ask me to pronounce it. <laughs> that's a hydroxychloroquine. Yes, that's right. Correct. Yes, I've been hearing wow. about this as well. Aren't you the pharmacist? <laughs> well, I know little things. Uh, I know a little thing uh, here, too. Apparently, I could have probably never pronounced that word. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard of this drug before. Okay. As many. And Good. I well, I hope that works. I'm not quite sure Me if too. it is, but I, I think that's we only have a hope here, <laughs> to be honest with you. That's right. 
as I said, my hopes are high. Yeah, I, I think eventually we'll figure something out. We do have a lot of the smartest people around in this country working hard all around the clock here. Right. So I definitely well, I think it's good. Yeah, I think it's good that we're heeding the advice of the doctors we've been talking to in Italy and the doctors in the emergency rooms in France that say we didn't uh, choose to self-isolate. We didn't close restaurants, public events, theaters. Um, we didn't try to mitigate the spread. And we are now at crises because we can't handle the onset. And there's going to be another good 45 to 60 days until we see the final onslaught as, as people finally begin to really self-isolate. So it's probably going to be another two to three months. It's not probably another two to three weeks. <laughs> Oh, so I, I think understanding that uh, sort of uh, humbly and logically is the right thing to do. And I'm just doing things like, you know, I'm reading the books that I've been set aside. I'm <laughs> taking care of aspects nice. of my taxes. I haven't done I'm gardening. Um, you know, I'm exercising to the extent that I can. I actually had a ski injury myself oh, on no. March 1st. I was in Utah for, for three weeks skiing, and I had a lovely fall on a very steep hill with an with another expert skier who's one of the major ski instructors at uh, Deer Valley. And uh, it was his suggestion we, we take a steep one in the middle of a snowstorm with poor visibility. And uh, I took a nice tumble, probably doing about 35 miles an hour. Damn. Uh, hit, my, hit my shoulder, fractured it, got a concussion, slid wow. about 25 or 30 feet until I could roll over and get my skis downhill, which finally stopped me. But then I realized, oh, my gosh, I've really hurt myself. So uh, once I could stand up, even though I felt nauseous and I was a little blurry-eyed, um, literally almost seeing double, I skied wow. down anyway because I didn't want ski patrol to come and get me because that's worse. If you've ever had a ski patrol ride, it's terrible. It's you know, they, they drag you on a, you know, literally on the snow itself over all the bumps. And I knew I had a concussion already. So it sounds like it sounds like an Abbott and Costello movie. It, it, was, it was quite interesting. So needless to say. I can't drive because I have a fractured shoulder and I had my arm in a sling. So I've been self-isolating already since the beginning of March. So I'm sort of beginning my fourth week now in kind of self-quarantine or self-isolation. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm rather than getting frustrated by it, I'm just going with the flow and trying to heal and, you know, doing meditation and prayer and, uh, you know, what I can for the earth, um, you know, working now that I'm, and I had to fly home, of course, that was about a week ago I flew home. So I've also self-quarantined because I was in public for that flight home, um, which was the 14th of March. So, um, and then shortly the day, the day I left, they closed all the ski resorts in Utah where we were, which I'm not surprised about. So it's a very interesting time. It's, it's much like, you know, uh, 9-11. We all remember that. That wasn't that long ago, uh, just a little more than 19 years ago. It's, you know, it's a new world and it's not going to be the same world. Things the, are going to change yeah, economically, world, kind of like a reset button. The world has changed overnight. Yes, it has. That's ridiculous. You know, Michael, 
You know, Michael, last, uh, I think it was last, uh, this past Tuesday when we did the show, you played a clip with someone, um, I can't remember who, but, uh, somebody said that it, this is worse than 9-11. This is worse than 9-11. Mm. Definitely. I feel that way, no doubt. And to be honest with both of you and everyone out there, I am in the same boat as all of you. I do have plenty of anxiety and I am worried for all of you out there and worried for another friend of mine that is sort of MIA, a guy that helped me create my website. I haven't talked to him in weeks and usually he gets back to me. He's in San Francisco. He's a programmer. I don't know where he's at. He um is not answering his phone either. And on that note, I also reached out to Mike Rogers, and that goes straight to voicemail as well. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. talked to him, uh, Jennifer. I didn't. I haven't spoken to him. I emailed with him earlier in the week, but um, I haven't. I haven't spoken to him uh, personally. Maybe about three weeks or so. I, I did a radio show with him just before I left to go skiing, uh, right at the end of February, but. Um, I haven't. I haven't spoken to him. I do hope he's well. He's he has uh, paved the way for a new radio show on KGRA, and I think he's really enjoying it and doing a great job. And I've been happy to be a guest on his show a couple of times. And I've always had a lot of respect for Mike Rogers ever since I I, I read all his documents uh, relating to Philip Class at right. the American Philosophical Society. I suddenly had a huge uh, admiration and respect for this man. Definitely. Wow. Yeah, so I gave him a call earlier, hoping that we can bring him on, but that went straight ah. to voicemail. Oh, hmm. yeah, well, he, that would have been very, <laughs> uh, very great to have him on the show. It would have been fun, but you know, he's been kind of, um, I think he's been kind of upset with me too. How could anyone be upset with you, Michael? Well, there's plenty it's of ways. So charming. There's plenty of ways, trust me. <laughs> I was being sarcastic. I know. <laughs> I, I love that. Don't worry. You know, he, he, I think he's just upset over a few things, but you know, I, I try to reach out and of course it went straight to voicemail, but that's okay. I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure. Yeah. There's probably nothing to worry about. Yeah. It's all good. And uh, probably just hates your guts. Yeah. Well, there's also that. You never know. So, so Jennifer, (laughs) tell me about the MUFON conference being canceled finally. Well, we just uh, finally decided. It was actually not me who decided, but the uh, state director of uh, MUFON, Pennsylvania, whose name is John Duchette. He um, agreed that the likelihood that uh, you know things will still be safe by the end of April is unlikely. We're really looking, as I said before, between a forty-five to sixty-day. Uh, process whereby those who have been exposed to this coronavirus will then show signs and then know that they are infected. We, since we don't have testing kits readily available, we can't know who's been exposed or who hasn't. So it's just to err on the side of caution to protect our own field investigators who end up working the conference as, you know, check-in people and in, you know, door people and, uh, you know, a work at organizing our banquet and introducing our speakers and helping our speakers sell books and things like that. It's just the smart thing to do. 
So we've postponed till October 23rd and 24th. It'll be in the same location that we normally have the the eastern side of the state's conference. We it actually in Pennsylvania, MUFON runs it has been running three conferences a year. One in Philadelphia in the Sheraton Hotel in the Bucks County area, which is near our border with New Jersey, southeastern Pennsylvania. We run run in the Pittsburgh area on the western side of the state and one in Erie, which is up near our our border with with Canada. Right. It's kind of up towards Lake Ontario at the uh, north uh, western part of the state. Did, so, did you say Lake Erie, Erie? No, I said near Lake Ontario in the oh, city okay. of Erie. Oh, in the city. Oh, yeah. okay. Because I'm from Pennsylvania. That's why okay. I asked. Yeah, yeah. So we've done three conferences a year uh, for a number of, of years. And um, I think we probably will not host the conference in Erie. I think we may have one in Pittsburgh in the fall, but uh, we've we've moved the Philadelphia conference till October, which is the normal time we had the conference. Um, the only reason we switched it up is because uh, I think Ancient Aliens had a Megacon conference two years ago in November in the Baltimore area, and it drew a lot of people away from our conference. Could they they had to choose? Well, if I if I if I only have the money to go to one conference, which is it going to be? Although the Megacon conference probably charged about five hundred dollars and had about five thousand people there, ours is only about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars, depending on what you choose to attend. And you can pick and choose if you want to skip a banquet and just hear the speakers. You can always do that. But we've been running very good conferences for about fifteen years in the Philadelphia area now, and uh, they're very well attended. We usually get between one hundred and fifty to three hundred people. So we want to be careful. And we don't want to expose people or make people feel like they're missing something. I considered uh, stepping up and trying to help them do sort of like a, you know, a virtual conference. But that was a little too complicated because we still needed to fly in our speakers and the U.S. is closing its borders. And we had some speakers coming from Europe. So we had to to, you know, rethink it and move it towards uh, the October period of time. So it it would still be a great conference. There's there's information about it if people want to go to MUFONPA.com. They can learn a little bit. I have more information at um, my website, which is called Mainline MUFON. That's like I live on the what they call the main line of Philadelphia, which is refers to a literally a train line, a local train line in and out of the city. But uh, it's it's referred to the the main train line, so we call this area the main line, and it's kind of the wealthy northwestern suburbs. So I have a, a website called Mainline Mufon M U F O N, and if you go to that MainlineMufon.com and you click on annual conference, I have a full schedule and details of the speakers and even links, and you can read about the speakers and learn more about the conference there. Wow. Very nice. Now, all I can think about Very as you're talking about this or these conferences, will we ever have conferences again? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> we'll have to see. Um, you know, it really depends on how well our our medical services and our government agencies are going to be able to respond and how many people are diagnosed uh, and come down with this uh, with this illness how many people are susceptible uh, obviously people who are getting it 
uh, and succumbing to it already have secondary health conditions. They may have CPOD already. They may be elderly. They they have diabetes. They have something else that's also compromised their immune system. And um, it's it's kind of like hurting the crowd, kind of like, right? It's it's uh, uh, it's definitely going to affect a large number of people. Like we know that the flu and the influenza usually kills about a million people a year. The estimate is that this unique virus will kill another million. So that's still a huge impact in our in our country. Um, and uh, I, we're definitely going to feel the effects of it. And may I ask? May I ask you a question, real quick, sure, Jennifer? Sure. Now, what what you just said about on a on a with a regular flu, about a million people die a year. Is that what you said? I I think that those were the statistics I read in the New York Times. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I would imagine something it probably would take more, uh, take hold more in say and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just guessing, but maybe in third world countries where medicine isn't available as it is in in more uh, westernized countries or so. But what I'm getting at is, um, you know, we, we, you mentioned the whole thing about a million people dying from a regular flu and the possibility of another million people dying with this flu. Now, that's just based on the fact that we're self-quarantining ourselves and closing borders and shutting public places down. We're, we're, we're hoping that it's not that high. But that's, oh, okay. yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. The quarantines may really help. But from the algorithms that we saw in terms of breakouts that went on in, of course, starting in China, then in Korea, and then in Italy, and in France, um, and of course, Iran, if you look at their numbers, and then you make projections about what we think we could anticipate to expect. Uh, these were some medical doctors I heard on a podcast uh, making these projections well, about the, a week ago. The one thing I found kind of interesting that you just mentioned just, just kind of gave me a shock was, for example, um, I believe it was uh, swine flu or, or czar's flu that we had something an estimated around twenty to 30,000 people died. Now, when you said a million, I got to say that was kind of shocking on a regular yeah. – for a regular flu, uh, that's an average? Um, I don't know if that's just in the United States or if that was worldwide. Worldwide, um, yeah. I, I have to go back. I mean, I could probably Google it and look it up. But I, I could do it too. I, I, I just, I, I, it just kind of, it freaks me out because I, I, as I just recently heard, what, maybe two weeks, three weeks ago, that the, the swine flu killed around 20, 20 to 30,000 people uh, somewhere in that range. So hearing this is a uh, wow, shocking. Yes. Yeah, well that's why they're taking it very seriously because of course. The, the contagion uh rate um from this is very very high. It it has an ability to stay alive on surfaces for long periods of time. So people are exposing one another and they don't know it, you know. Right. So um that's that's the uh the serious situation. And the contagious part can last for what they said two weeks, no? Uh, yes, yes. People people can actually be contagious and not know it for, for know actually it. Uh, maybe even longer. They can be passing it longer. But usually it will it will show it should show up if you are exposed to it and your immune system um, can't 
you know, uh, it just succumbs to it for a, a, at least a period of time when you're sick with it, you should know within 14 days if you're going to get it. But you could have it. You could be um, just it may not affect you. You may just have a dry cough or a runny nose, but still be contagious and be giving it to others and not even know you have it after two weeks. Wow. Frightening. I'll tell you yesterday, uh, I, I was so sick yesterday for the first 30 minutes. I th I thought to myself, this is it. I've got Corona. Oh, no, but uh, it wasn't that it, it, it was stomach issues, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but still, it made it made me think like, is this it? Am I, you know, was this a symptom? I, I couldn't even. Well, tell. Mike, but I mean, I, I, I got to stop you right there and say all the people that I have seen that were infected with this, all of it started with stomach issues. Oh, you're gonna kill me now! Did you have? Now, did now you, you're freaking me out, Mike. Well, I was already freaked out when he told me. Did, do you have? Did you have diarrhea? Do I have to talk about that on the radio? <laughs> I mean, this is an open discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll we'll pass on that. We'll, we won't talk about my bodily functions uh, for the okay, show. No, no but thank you for your appreciation. <laughs> I worry about you. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, Thanks, don't worry. <laughs> you'll be fine. Good. good thank if you, you feel Dr. fine Michael. right now. Yeah, if you feel fine right now, I think you'll be cool. Yeah, I, I it was just a it was just a passing uh Explosive diarrhea situation. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Yes. It was an know, explosive diarrhea. I was feeling a little sick actually a couple weeks ago. But, um, same situation. Did you have diarrhea too, Michael? <laughs> I didn't have any stomach issues, thankfully. I just, all right. I just, Good. you know, I had a, a little bit of a um, cough going on. Slight cough. Makes you think, right? Yeah. You get all worried and scared. Sure. With everything that's going on, there's, there's, there's a whole, Everybody's freaked out right now. The fear is, is astonishing. It's astonishing how everybody is so, it's so freaked out. So yeah, I hear you, man. But I'm good. I'm Corona free as, as far as I can tell. Yeah, me too, brother. I have none and of have the classic been, have symptoms. Have you guys been self-isolating basically? Of course. I've been staying away from people like I always have been. However, you know, I view most people <laughs> as a potential menace. <laughs> so, you know, I walk well, around and. Stayed far away before the social distancing was actually a cool thing. Jennifer, I, I have been self-isolating since December. <laughs> okay, good. Well, yeah, good. we've been sequestered a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit of a plus there. Well, it's good that we can laugh about this. Um, but there are people out there, you know, who are obviously dealing with a very serious situation. And Absolutely. of course, our hearts go out to them. So I, I Googled online about the normal flu. And in the United States, we have about 20,000 flu deaths a year. So the million must be like worldwide kind of. Yeah, thing. that yeah. that sounds a little bit more yeah. um, logical. And as I said, it probably affects countries that are more maybe more in the third world categories and they may not have access to uh, hospitals or medical attention um, or, you know, medicine. And, and that would, um, I would imagine that was probably something that would affect third world countries. Oh, well, definitely. Right. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Ahead, especially Jeffrey. countries that are not observing self-isolation, like many, many countries I hear it's really probably now spreading into Malaysia and places oh. like that, that are celebrating, uh, uh, annual harvest celebrations and, you know, uh, Ramadan and other things like that. And the Muslim countries, there's, uh, been stories of people breaking into mosques in order to have 
you know, prayer services and they're just infecting one another and they, Ooh, they probably do not realize it. And they haven't closed open markets and things like that. So, you know, I've been looking. Are, uh, yeah, I was, I was just reading that there are 45, I'm sorry, 34 million cases of flu in the United States and about 20,000 flu deaths. So you, you consider 20,000 out of 34 million, it's a small percentage. Right. And that's an, yeah. that's an average, you say, right? Yeah. Well, this says in the current season. Oh, okay. so that means this year there have been about 34 million cases of flu in the United States, 350,000 hospitalizations, and 20,000 flu deaths. Now, that's not from the coronavirus. That's just flu in general. Gotcha. So it's, you know, flu is always a very serious thing for, uh, for especially older people. I lost my mother-in-law a few years back from it. Um, in about a month, you know, because one, you, they might recover from the flu, but then there's secondary things that go on in an older person. Um, she right. developed pneumonia, you know, she got pneumonia in her lungs and she also developed blood clots and she couldn't really get beyond it. And right. it was a very difficult time. In fact, I was just finishing the Travis film in order to get it into the uh, 2015 Open Minds uh, conference. Uh, they have the largest, you uh, UFO film festival in the world and the largest UFO conference in the world, basically. And I was getting ready to leave for that in February and she died at the end of January. So it was quite a, a loss for me right sure. before the, uh, the Travis film was released. It's, it's, it's like what you said though, is always, there's always the after effects of for, particularly for an elderly person. Uh, yeah. They get sick, they get pneumonia, they get the fluid in their lungs. And then from being in bed, they get clots and, Right. It right. Goes down so it's there. all the secondary things that really ended up. I mean, she recovered from the flu, basically, but not from the secondary things that came, you know, the fluid yeah. that developed actually between her lungs and her chest wall. Her the lungs give off fluid as they're trying to recover from pneumonia and um, that, you know, those sorts of things are what took her life. And we were very sorry to lose her. Sure. That's yeah, yeah. terrible. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, so. Yes. Well, you know, that's life. It, uh, it's um, life is a process of appreciating what you have. And when you suddenly lose what you have, you appreciate it more. Absolutely. So. Exactly. My goodness. And of course, I was looking at the numbers in Italy and I'm seeing 53,578 cases in that country there. And, you know, I have to say they do have the population with the highest um like elder, el the the high the highest like older population really. Right, correct. So many right. older folks there. So I mean, no one should be that surprised about Italy. Yeah, a bunch of old Italians. Oh my! Can you even believe that being out there? I couldn't. I mean, yeah, the high elder population own, there. We've got our own problems. Just just hearing what they're going through, it must be devastating. It is nice to see videos of them singing in the streets, though. Well, outside their windows. Didn't they do that for the plague? Pro yeah, I think they did too. That's right. Wow. History is repeating itself. Oh, please. Frightening. Yeah, all of this is too frightening. And here we are supposed to uh, talk about the Travis Walton case. It's it's yes. very difficult to. Yes. I was just about to ask that. Can you tell us about a, a little bit about this, this film, uh, the Travis Walton movie? Yeah, go ahead, sure. Jennifer. Uh, the name of the film is called uh, Travis, 
the true story of Travis Walton. And uh, the website for the film, if there are listeners who want to go to a website and be able to see things about it, the, the website for the film is called TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. It's pretty simple. It's basically Travis's name. Um, Travis is really known around the world for um, this very unique uh, situation which happened to him and six other loggers when he was about 21 years old in 1975, he worked with his one of his best friends named Mike Rogers. We were mentioning earlier Mike Rogers' name. Uh, Mike was about 28 and Travis was about 21. And they, with five other loggers, would go and do what's called timber stand improvement in the Sitgraves National Forest. Now, uh, the Sitgraves National Forest is an area that's a about several hundred thousand acres of ponderosa pine trees and, and, and other trees as well. And it's a high plateau uh, that sits high above the Arizona and New Mexico deserts um, in the northern parts of the state. Part of the swath of this area goes through northern New Mexico into, um, I should say, north uh, eastern Arizona and then kind of curves up by Flagstaff and moves into southern Colorado. And it's a plateau that's about 7,000 feet high. And if you're driving up to it, say from the Phoenix area, it's a very uh, striking plateau. You can see it for miles as you approach it from almost 50 miles away. And you kind of weave your way, you know, and switchbacks up into it. It's, it's really a dramatic part of our country. And it's part of the Navajo uh, National Reservation. And it's a national National Forest as well. So between the Navajos and our uh, state parks, we preserve this area. And timber stand improvement, just to basically explain what that is, it's where um, loggers go out and they clear the underbrush for dead trees or small saplings, things that could easily burn and keep the uh, a forest fire going and spreading if a lightning strike hits. And this area is one of the highest areas of lightning strikes in the country because it's so high and because the trees are so tall and so old. So um, to preserve the forest, they cut the underbrush and put it in piles or stacks that are called slash piles. So it's basically just like um, almost like the funeral pyres that they built in Game of Thrones, if people watched them. You know, they're just like piles of, 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 of wood that they'll burn in the winter when it snows, because then you won't, you don't have the risk of setting the forest on fire, and you just burn little tiny controlled piles of, uh, of underbrush, so that then in the dry season, in the summer, when it's hot and dry and windy, there isn't a lot to to keep the forest ablaze if if a blaze should start. And they also cut swaths for fire trucks to be able to get through the forest. So they clear areas to kind of barricade the, the forest into mile square, you know, sections so that they can control a fire if it breaks out. And that's basically what timber stand improvement is. So, so they, they weren't working like, you know, cutting down logs for a logging company, but they were considered loggers. And they uh, would commission uh, the Park Service for a certain contract for a certain area of land. The particular area they were working in was called the Turkey Springs area. 
and um, Mike Rogers had, you know, bidded bid for the contract and got it and was trying to keep up with his contractual agreement with the Park Service to clear a certain amount of land and, you know, be able to burn these these uh, fires in the winter. So it was November 5th, 1975. They were in their Turkey Springs regional area. It was the end of the day. They had uh, finished their work and thrown their gas cans and their chainsaws in the back of a pickup truck. And we're starting to drive uphill to get back to a main road. So they were driving through an area they had cleared uh, to try, you know, um, and they were going to get to what's called a dirt road, also called the rim road, because the road literally is at the top of the edge of a rim uh, in this area. So they could then drive back home to where they lived. Most of them lived in Snowflake, um, which was about a 35 to 40 minute drive. And as they were driving kind of uphill, they saw this odd light sort of in the top of the canopy of the trees ahead of them. And they couldn't figure out what it was because it was almost dark. It was pretty much getting dark. And they thought, well, that's not the sun setting, is it, coming through the trees? That's not the moon. You know, what is that weird light? And when they got up to it, they got to a clearing where they could clearly see where this light was coming through the trees. And clear as day, you know, all of them could see a uh, about a 25 to 30 foot disc sitting in the canopy of these trees, just just like at the top of the the the, the canopy. It was off the ground about 25 to 30 feet, maybe maybe a little more. Um, but it was below some of the, the, the higher trees above it. And um, there, it was, you know, they could see it clear as day. In fact, one of the guys in the back of the seat, you know, hauled out and yelled, it's a UFO. And Travis was sitting in what's called the jump seat, the passenger seat in the front of the truck. He flew open the door and decided he was going to run uphill and get right underneath it because he wanted a really good look at this thing. I mean, some of the guys have said, you know, it was like looking at something you just didn't get that close to very often, like, you know, an incredible Corvette or, you know, it was an incredible piece of a, a machinery. They were stunned. Well, I mean, most of them could hardly say anything. They were just fascinated by it. And Travis, I think in his family, he and his brother had witnessed one UFO before that that just kind of flew by and he wanted a really good look at it because he figured it would be gone in a second. And he wanted to really, he didn't want to be in the truck watching it. He wanted to be standing on the ground. And then what's, then things started to change drastically and very quickly. It seems like everyone felt some kind of vibration building up. In fact, Mike Rogers, who was driving the truck, said he felt vibration in the steering wheel of the truck and under his arm on the door where his elbow was sitting, he could feel a sense of, of vibration building up. And they all could sense a huge amount of static electricity building up as if their hats were like raising up on their heads and their hair was standing up on end. And Travis got a little scared at this moment, but he didn't really want to reveal that to the other guys. So he he kind of knelt down or was trying to hide behind one of these slash piles they had built like the week or two before. And so he was kind of kneeling behind a pile of, of branches, right, that were going to be burned at some point. And at, in order to, to hide behind these 
branches, which he really couldn't do because the UFO was kind of above him. He kind of had to jump a little bit closer to where the UFO was to kind of kneel down, which he did. And finally, he got the idea he should probably stand up and run back to the truck. And at the moment that he stood up, something happened that the craft must have reacted in some way defensively because he was hit by a what's considered to be a blue-green beam of light that was like a lightning bolt that struck him very quickly, picked him up higher than he would have normally been if he just stood up or jumped up from a squatting position, threw him back about 15 feet in, in the air. And when Travis landed, he landed without any attempt to break his fall. He landed like his body crumpled up as if he didn't have a bone left in his body, according to the boys in the truck who witnessed this. And they were, of course, scared to death. Of course, yeah. That they were going to get hit with a beam next. And they, you know, people were screaming, close the door. So they slammed the door and drove away, driving, continuing to drive uphill up towards the rim road. And that that's the main event of, of the story. But when they get up to the rim road, they think maybe they can find a, a car or a truck going by or they can get some help or they can get some hunters maybe with some guns because there's a big it's a big hunting area. And there are a couple of cabins up there, but there's no real electric strung there. You know, I mean, pe people, this is not a community. This is a barren, you know, state park forest. So they get up to the rim road and they realize that they're not really going to get any help. And Mike Rogers says, OK. Look, you guys get out, build a fire if you want in the middle of the road, you know, stay warm. It's dark by this point and it's getting cold because it's November. So it's going down to like, you know, 20 degrees easily. He says, I got to go back and get Travis. I don't care what shape he's in. I'm responsible for him. And if I don't make an effort to go back, I'll regret it the rest of my life. So they turn the truck around, which is a little tricky to do in the dark in the forest, in this narrow area with trees everywhere. But none of the boys want to stay in the forest, you know, even as a group. They all jump back in the truck. <laughs> they want to stay with Mike. Right. So they turn around and start heading back to where this incident just took place five, ten minutes before, right? And as they're driving now going downhill, they can see the craft still. And, and you know, now they're looking down on it from above, and the craft takes off. They see it, they see it, like zip off very, very quickly. So they know the craft isn't there anymore. So they get back to the spot where the incident takes place, and they kind of have to guess at it because they're pretty sure they know where it is, but they're not positive. But then they see, oh, this is where the tires spun out in the truck, so this is where we were. And they can see Travis's footprints. So they go and they follow his tracks, and they, they have the, the truck lights kind of parked up at an angle on the hill trying to find Travis, and he's not where he landed. They know the slash piles. They know the forest. They had cut the, you know, the underbrush there two weeks before, so they knew the territory. But Travis was missing. So they spend about 40 minutes walking around. They have one flashlight between them. They're all arm in arm. They're calling for him. They're looking for him. You know, they, they can't find him, and they figure they have to go get help. So they all get back in the truck, turn the truck around. They head back down, takes them about an hour to get back to the nearest town, which is called Heber, um, H-E-B-E-R is the name of the, the small town. By the and, way, Jennifer, uh, they, I just yeah. need to cut you off really quickly and say the town next over to me is called Heber. 
Oh, really? Yep. Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a number of them around. There's one in Utah as well. Ah, yes. Yeah. Go ahead. So uh, they, one of the boys named uh, Kenny Peterson, he's probably the, the, you know, one of the more religious in the group, agrees to call the county uh, sheriff and tell them that they have a man missing and uh, they need help. And they're at a gas station on a main road. I think it's like 284 or something like that. It's the main road through the town of Heber. And the police sergeant agrees to come out and, you know, meet them and try to help them and learn what he can learn about this missing man. They don't mention anything about a UFO because they know nobody's going to believe them. I mean, the conversations that went on in that truck, I can't imagine between this event and getting down to that phone booth. You know, some of the boys had had small run-ins with the law. I think one of them might have picked up a car once and had a joyride with it. I think one of them was, you know, maybe caught for uh, taking money out of a drawer at a, a, a place he worked, a business he worked, you know. So some of these boys were afraid that this incident could get them in jail forever because Travis was missing and they had they thought the UFO had taken him. That's really what they thought. They thought, oh, my gosh, you know, what are we going to do? He's not here. So what what ensued after that is this Deputy Ellison shows up. Uh, about 45 minutes later, because, you know, it's 40 minutes away from where uh, anyone lived. So the the deputy takes each of the boys aside, you know, first he hears from two or three of them the account of what happened. And then he takes them each aside separately and asks them to explain it again, because, you know, he's like, okay, I got, I got to hear them, but I want to hear them separately because maybe one of them murdered Travis and they're trying to cover for it. And right. I need to kind of see what I can pick up here. You know, what's my instinct? And he looks in the back of the truck to see if there's any beer cans. He sniffs around to see if they're smoking pot, right? Is, is there something else going on, you know? And then he says to the boys, all right, well, we got to go back up there and look for him. And he asked for volunteers that are going to go right around, turn right around and go back up and look. And uh, three of the boys volunteer to go back up and two say they're, they've had it. They have to go home. They're too freaked out. So three of them go back up. Mike Rogers is one of them. And they look for Travis for, you know, another hour, hour and a half by themselves. And then, of course, the police have sergeant has more um, flashlights and things like that, but there's no sign of him anywhere. So by this point, it's about midnight, quarter of one. Um, they go to Travis's mother's house and knock on her door and tell her what's happened to Travis because they feel that that's responsible. They have to do that. And they alert a couple of other police officers middle of the night. They call them and say, we have to put together a search posse in the morning and we have to start looking for Travis, which is exactly what happens. At daybreak, 6 a.m., there's upwards of 100 people, uh, part of the Navajo search and rescue team. Um, you know, indigenous Native Americans are up there as well and their own posse looking for him. There are people on on horseback looking for him. There are helicopters looking for him. And there are, you know, uh, Arizona uh, Search and Rescue brings out a group of sniffing dogs and his mother supplies clothing so they the dogs know what, he, what Travis smells like. And this goes on for five days and they can't find Travis. 
And each of the boys in the crew, the logging crew, are assigned to a specific um, search and rescue group. So there's many different groups up there. And there's a sergeant with each one of these groups. And the sergeant throughout the day manages to pin each of these boys against a tree at some point and says, why don't you just tell us where the body is? And the sooner you do, the sooner we can just go home and get this over with. Jennifer, so I'm sorry to cut you off, but that scene right there, that was accurate in the movie, correct? Um, In the Fire in the Sky movie, yes. I think they did depict that pretty well. So that part was accurate, yes. Okay. Although they uh only had four guys on the crew, I think, instead of a total of seven. You know, with Travis missing, that meant there were six. But in the Fire in the Sky movie, they sort of took some of the different characters, like Travis's older brother, and they combined him with one of the crew members, mm. which really wasn't the case. But, uh, you know, they, they did change a few things in the film. But the assumption of murder was well depicted in Fire in the Sky. And that's exactly right. These boys, it was assumed that they murdered him, that they chopped up his body, that they buried it somewhere, and that there was a kind of a fight or a brawl that broke out and they were all covering for each other because nobody wanted to admit who killed him. Right. And Mike, you've never seen Fire in the Sky, correct? I, I I haven't seen the film, but I know I know it. the story. Yeah. I have I've seen documentaries that have mentioned it. So I had to ask Jennifer a question. Um, sure. Your film is a documentary Correct. about this. Correct. And, and yeah. do you have interviews with uh, with Everyone. the people who are involved? Everyone great. who's living. <laughs> yes. I so, went to great lengths and worked for about five years to track down as many people as I could and interview them. So without giving the story away to your film, can you tell me, can you tell our audience, uh, was uh, Travis ever found? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the fifth day, uh, they, they um, at the end, well, I should say at the end of the fifth day, they decided to give all these boys polygraph tests because, as I mentioned, the the different deputies kind of pinned each of the crew members against a tree at some point in the forest and threatened them and said, look, why don't you just tell us, you know, who killed them? And finally, the boys, each of them sort of said, look, if you don't believe me, give, give me a lie detection test. They, they literally suggested it because they knew they were innocent and they didn't want to go to jail or face the electric chair or something. You know, in, in Arizona at that point, even if you didn't find a body, but if you were convicted of murder, which you could be without bodily evidence, right. you could you, you could go to jail for life or you could go to the electric chair. That was the law in Arizona well, at the time. You, you do realize, I mean, under the circumstances, I would imagine the, the, the police had, you know, that probably went through their mind and rightfully so. I mean, right. they. Right. You know, how do you just say, well, there was a UFO in the sky and it took him away? I mean, it, it, right. it's, I mean, it's very an difficult amazing to, to bring story. that up. It's an amazing story. And because of that, Mike, what happened is, you know, every news broadcasting company that there was in a 50 or 100 mile radius descends on these small towns of Heber, Holbrook and Snowflake. Right. Right. So Hol- Holbrook. They're all about 30 minutes away from each other, and they're kind of in a triangle. So Heber was the smallest of all the towns and was the last little town they went through before they went up to the 
to the forest. It's where the back roads, the switch back roads were to get up, up into the plateau where they were working. And Snowflake is where a lot of them lived. And Holbrook was what you call the county seat. It's where the courthouse was. It's where the county jail was. It was the hub and center for the police departments at that point, at that time. It's where the sheriff's office was. So finally, uh, the boys were hauled in to the, the, the county courthouse and the county jail, essentially. They were all held in the kitchen, what they call the chow hall. Um, I took me a long time to understand what they were saying when they said, yeah, we were in the chow hall. I went, well, what's the chow hall? And they said, that's where you eat chow, Jennifer. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay. You mean food? <laughs> you could tell I was from Philadelphia. I, said, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. But they held them in, in the kitchen and they took them one by one in and they did, you know, interrogations with these boys, hooked them up to lie detection tests. And the man who did it was the state polygraph examiner for Arizona. His name was Cy Gilson. So I got to interview Cy and he's, his interview is, is in the film. And Cy readily admits that uh, even though he thought the suspicion of murder was strong, he um, really started to change his mind after about the third guy, you know, passed the test. So basically all of the boys passed the test. Um, initially, one of one of them, his name was Alan Dallas. He had been he had had more infractions with the law than any of the rest of them. And he didn't trust the law, you know, come hell or high water. And he didn't really cooperate appropriately with the lie detection. So his test was was considered inconclusive, yeah. although it didn't show he was guilty, but it did show that he was inconclusive and he didn't sit still because you really need to sit very, very still. If you're moving around, you throw off the readings and they can't be considered accurate. And, you know, in many states, they don't even allow lie detection to be presented in a court of law because especially even in 1975, it was a new technology and it wasn't considered 100% reliable. But um, because really what it shows is signs of stress. And uh, that that plays out later in the film because people wanted Travis Walton when, when he reappeared, uh, which, which he did that particular day when all of them had taken the lie detector test that day. And it was shown that they were they were not, you know, they were telling the truth. That was about 5 or 6 p.m. when they finally let them all go home. Uh, and that night, about midnight, Travis was returned by this UFO. And he was returned in the town of Heber. So it's really quite fascinating that these beings that picked him up didn't return him way back up on the top of the plateau where he was taken from. They had enough smarts or intelligence or concern for Travis to bring him back to a point where he could interact with civilization. Because if they left him up on the top of this plateau, which was a 45-minute switchback drive in a truck, he would have died. He would have frozen to death. I or agree. been attacked by a moose or a coyote or a bear or something, you know. Yeah, that's one thing I thought about. If, if he was out there for that long, I'm sure there would have been signs of that easily. Correct. Correct. I mean, first of all, the dogs would have found him, right? Yeah. The helicopters would have spotted him. There would have been some evidence of him attempting to Flee. Um, survive on his own, right? To build a fire or to hunt for food. I mean, he didn't even have a gun on him, right? So, you know, uh, usually when they were out there during the day with their chainsaws, they made enough noise that the wild animals stayed far away. So, uh, you know, maybe in the truck there was a rifle, 
but uh, none of them were packing pistols uh, on top of carrying their chainsaws all day long. So uh, if if Travis uh, had been left out there, he could not have fended for himself. He didn't have a blanket or anything like that, and he was probably severely injured by this uh, by this beam. In fact, he knows he was severely injured. Now, what's an interesting part of this story is that Travis is gone for five days. Somewhere in this period of time, he wakes up on board this craft, and he thinks he's in a hospital. He's severely injured. He has a terrible pain in his chest. He can hardly breathe. He has blurred vision. He's He goes in and out of consciousness. So he doesn't know how long it is from the time he begins to wake up until he can finally focus his eyes on something that's lying across his chest. He has this like device that's like a semicircle device with light coming out of it. And his shirt and his jacket, which he's wearing, is kind of pushed up around his neck. And this device is kind of laying across his chest. And he can finally focus his eyes and see that and he hears things. He he knows he's being touched. He can hear people like moving around him. He thinks he can hear muffling around him. He just thinks he's in a hospital and he's being cared for. And then what happens is suddenly, as I said, his eyes start to be able to focus on this device that's on him. And then he can see the ceiling and he sees a light above him. Then he sees these beings leaning over him and looking at him. And when he can focus his eyes, I mean, the first couple times he sees them, he thinks they're doctors with like surgical masks on and like white hats on, like you would see in a surgical room, right? And then he realizes, oh my gosh, these these are not human. This is not, I'm not, this is not Kansas, right? I'm not in the hospital. And he freaks out. And he manages enough strength to hit one of them with his hand. But basically, he sees three grays leaning over him, two from one side and one from the, you know, two from his right and one from his left, I think. And he hits them. They they are shocked. They kind of fall back a little bit. He said they, they felt like very, very old women, like they were 95 or 100 years old. He said their <laughs> bones were very, very frail. And he said they had a, a grayish type skin, a grayish white skin and large eyes and very big heads. And he said, although they were human-like, they were not human. And uh, that's when he jumps off the table or he rolls off the table. This device that's on his chest falls on the floor. He sees a bunch of medical instruments around him. He grabs one of them that looks like uh, sort of like a long cylinder, which he thought was glass or what we considered maybe to be like lucite or plastic, something like that. And he starts banging it on the table where he had been lying, trying to get their attention. And he, he yells at them. And he's still having difficulty breathing and difficulty seeing, but he's pointing this stick at him. He thought he could break off a sharp edge and and create a weapon that he could defend himself with against these strange-looking beings. And um, these beings then try to – they hold up their hand. They're staring at him. They're only about – four and a half feet tall, right? He's much taller than them, but he's on the opposite side of a like a medical table at this point in some kind of examining room or what might be what would be considered maybe a small little surgical room, possibly. He, he doesn't really know where he is, but these aliens hold up their hand or these grays 
and they they try, he believes, to get control of Travis's mind, to calm him down and to get him to maybe go numb or something. And he can sense it. He can feel a vibration and he fights against it because he's angry. And finally, these three aliens put their hands down, look at each other like, well, that didn't work, right? <laughs> and they leave the room. They kind of all turn like little robots and they just file out of the room. And Travis kind of goes behind him trying to figure out how to get out of this craft. He assumes he's in the UFO that he saw in the forest. And are you still following me? Do you have any questions? <laughs> it's quite detailed. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. Well, I, I figured I'd just give you the, the best detail I can because it's well, that You're certainly doing a good job. I, I yeah. figured only, you'd only give me like maybe a paragraph or two about what it was about, but well, that's if quite the... I mean, we're not going anywhere, right? We're all sort of self-isolating <laughs> quarantine, so I figured I might as well tell you this. We'll be here a while. So, yeah. So he follows them out and he, he goes out of the room he's in and he goes around a sharp curving hallway and he, he can't see where these three grays have gone, but he sees another room he can go into and he's trying to find a way out of what he assumes he's in, which is some kind of a, a dish shaped UFO. So he finds a room that has a single chair in it and it's kind of a round room. The ceiling's kind of low. He said light is coming through the walls, but there's no specific light fixtures like there were maybe in the room he was in there was a bright light above him but he said the rest of the craft kind of had seamless floors walls and ceilings that were kind of rounded it was almost like it was all one organism almost so he goes into this room where there's an open door and there's a chair in the middle of the room and it's kind of a round room and the chair kind of looks a little bit like an egg sitting on a pedestal but it's all one with the craft okay so there's no there's like the chair is sealed to the floor because it's part of the floor that kind of comes up on a pedestal and becomes an egg and is a seat and has controls on armrests so he, he walks around the edge of the room sees this chair in the middle of the room and he figures oh there might be an alien in there right there might be a being in there so he kind of walks around the edge of the room until he can see into the chair and there's nobody there so he walks from the edge of this room into the center. It isn't that big of a room. I think he describes it as maybe a, a 15 foot room or a 10 foot room, something like that. And he, as he walks into the middle of the room, the floor, the walls, the ceiling, the chair itself, everything in the room becomes a screen, sort of, where he can see stars as if he's in some kind of the middle of some star map. And then he takes a few steps back towards the wall where he came from and everything starts to fade. And as he walks closer again towards the chair, the room becomes a 365 degree uh, like planetarium is best way I can describe it. So he goes over to the chair, he sits in the chair and he starts to play with some of the buttons. Very brave soul, right? And as he does, the star maps around him change and he starts to get nauseous. Right. He's like, oh, you know, because everything around him is moving. And at that moment, he hears something in the doorway where he had just come through. So he stands up. And at that point, 
he sees what he says is a human in a jumpsuit that kind of looks like a star suit, uh, like a Star Trek jumpsuit, right? Like a blue jumpsuit with black boots and a black belt and a big helmet on that's lit. And the person's face can be seen. And it's a human face, looks human with bright blue goldeny eyes, but a very large human, like you know, maybe seven foot tall and fairly robust and fairly muscular. And he thinks it's an astronaut. He thinks NASA's come to rescue him. And he runs up to this guy and starts babbling questions like, you know, where am I? Can you get me out of the ship? You know, can you get me back to Earth? What's happened? Where, you know, and the guy is not answering him. He looks at him, he grabs his arm, and he starts to lead him out of the craft. So they, they leave this room they're in. They walk around this curved hallway. They get to a point where some double doors open. And suddenly Travis can breathe better. He notices that the air quality has changed dramatically. And he can, because he was, it was very difficult to breathe and it smelled very musty to him. It was like he said he was in like a steam room or something like that. It was very hard to breathe. So suddenly these doors open. They're in an air passageway. And then the outside of the craft doors open. And now he can breathe even better. And he looks down and he realizes he is in the UFO he saw in the forest. He's standing looking at the edge of it. And they walk down this very steep ramp um, and onto some sort of tarmac. And they are in some sort of hangar, uh, like an aircraft hangar of some sort. And the craft that they saw in the woods is is no longer lit up. It's no longer on. It's kind of like, you know, battleship gray metal, he thinks. And it's um, sitting on some tripod-type legs, but it's definitely about a 20-foot disc. And because he turns right around to look at it. And then he sees next to him in this hangar that they're in that has a, a ceiling to it. He realizes that there's light coming through the ceiling. Some some panels, what you might consider to be like a like maybe a, a sunroof type panel or something like that, or like a, a greenhouse room that kind of curves. That's what it looks like, but it's huge. And some of the panels in the ceiling are lit up and some are not. And he realizes that he can see five or six other craft that are not like the craft he just got off. And this is very interesting to me, especially in light of the 2016, the December 16th, uh, you know, Nimitz reports that came out when Luis Elizondo left the Pentagon and talked about the Nimitz and released the gun footage, right? Mm. What Travis sees or is what he describes as eggs, shiny eggs that are more elongated than they are high. And he said they're super shiny and they're sitting without any way, without any feet or legs. And they're larger than the disc that he got out of. And, they, and basically, he doesn't describe them as Tic Tacs. But what he describes is just like the Tic Tac. <laughs> there are five or six of these crafts sitting in this hangar, all parked very close together. And he's struggling to see what's there. And the guy is dr practically dragging him, walking across this tarmac into a building that this curved ceiling connects to. So it's kind of like, um, imagine if you take a, like a pipe and you divide it in four sections right there in the very top quarter section where the roof is letting some light in and they're walking across towards 
a flat straight wall, which appears to be a building and has, I think, some windows in it. I'm not quite sure how he described that, but they walk towards a building and they walk through some double doors that open when they get to the other side of this hangar and they walk into a hallway, walk down one hallway, make a turn, walk down another hallway and go into a room. And there are three more people that look similar to the guy who walked him in. Travis thinks they're human. They've got blonde hair, goldeny blue eyes, two men, one woman, but they don't have helmets on. They have jumpsuits like this guy does. It's like a bluish jumpsuit with a black belt, black boots, and um, they want him. They they say goodbye to the guy with the helmet who leaves. Maybe he's a captain of some sort. Who knows? But then these three other people, the one woman and the two men, want Travis to sit down on another medical table or lie down. And Travis is like, no, I want answers. You know, they're not talking to him, but they're telepathically communicating with him that they want him to calm down and they want him to lie down. And Travis is still not feeling very well, right? I mean, he knows he's got pain in his chest. He, he knows he's been severely hurt. He he doesn't know where he is. He thought he was in a hospital until he saw the grays looking over him, and then he realized he wasn't. Now, what's interesting is this, Travis tries to resist him, but the woman of the group has a rubber mask in her hand, and she places it over his face. They finally force him down on this table, kind of against his will, and she puts a mask over his face. He gets his fingers under it once or twice and pushes it away, and finally the boys hold him down, and she gets the mask on him, and as soon as that mask is finally on his face... He's out. He passes back out. Now, Jennifer, I'm going to jump in here really quickly and ask, why wasn't that included in the film Fire in the Sky? Because that's Hollywood. Uh, Travis told them the story. They had the real story, but they wanted to make it much more scary. A little bit more romantic. Hollywood does. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And also, I don't think at that point... Hollywood wanted to really clue us in to the gray aliens with the big heads, possibly working in tandem, maybe, with some other species. Maybe they're the Nordics. I don't know. But for lack of a better description, we on the film crew that made the film, we just kind of referred to them as, well, they were probably the Nordics, right, (laughs) who are supposedly a tall uh, race, you know, uh, maybe who originally settled the Nordic country. We don't know. But, um, the, you know, I, it appears to me that if the Greys couldn't get control of Travis and they had docked in some kind of hangar with other craft, that, refer- that signals to me just from the logistics that Travis describes. And of course, this is all based on Travis's description. I don't believe he's making it up. You know, but right. this is based on his description from 1975. No doubt. And you didn't, in 1975, you didn't hear about Grays working in tandem with Nordics. I didn't even start to learn about Nordics till maybe 95, you know, 20 years later. Right. And so it, it, it appears that maybe the Grays landed their craft mm-hmm. in the presence of Nordics who were kind of maybe closer in species or genetics to Travis. And they thought maybe that they could help him, them bring him back to life, maybe. 
I mean, this is what Travis has come to believe and understand over the years, that they probably killed him accidentally. Um, maybe the craft was having some kind of electrical discharge issues or it was trying to reboot itself. And when Travis stood up to run back to the truck, the craft reacted in a defensive way, thinking that something was being projected towards the craft. It's possible. It Travis's body. He was standing up, but the, but the craft reacted, or they reacted in a defensive way. Whether it was an accident or not, it killed them, and they felt they had the responsibility to bring him back to life. And they had the opportunity to pick him up because the rest of the boys drove away. So they did the right thing, and they picked him up. And uh, maybe they didn't have an opportunity to return him because there was a search party there for the last five days looking for him. So they did what they could. They dropped him off in town, you know, at night where he could find help, you know, in the town of Heber. It's just it's just really, really fascinating. So it really is. You know, basically, hold on that, one second, Jennifer. Mike, did you have a question? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask uh, Jennifer uh, if you could explain to our audience, uh, starting with how when you got started uh, in um, um Making the film? <laughs> no, no. In in your interest with uh, ufology, UFOs, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, UFOs, and the possibility of alien intelligence. When did you start getting into that, and what prompted you to to um, to take it to a, a next level of uh, documentary type things? Filmmaking, yeah. yeah. Well, I know most people need to have their head examined around this topic, <laughs> 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 me included. Well, I'll tell you, it started for me actually before it started for Travis, but the same year. Really? 19, so so yep. as far back as the 70s. That's right. So in 1975, I had a sighting at pretty close range myself. And it was an odd sighting. It didn't make sense to me. I saw a large rectangle of light about 70 to 90 feet long and about six to seven feet high of undulating white light that was blinding, but it didn't light anything up. This made no sense, Mike, at all. You know, I, I, I could not understand what it was that I was looking at or experiencing. And... <sighs> Without going into a long description of it, I wrote it down in a journal at the time that I was keeping because I was trying to kind of understand my subconscious. So I was writing down a lot of my dreams at the time. And I, I knew that this was some bizarre interaction. I just interpreted it as a UFO. And immediately, and it also seemed to me to be a matter of, of seconds that I saw it. Like I saw this odd light in the sky about uh, quite a distance away at first when I woke up at about 530 in the morning and it was still kind of black and white outside. It wasn't yet color, right? It was dawn. The sun was just starting to come up, but it was black and white. And I saw this light in the sky as I went to grab my journal to write down a dream. And I couldn't figure out what this light was because it wasn't moving. And it was about 45 degrees on the horizon, about a mile and a half away, about 1500 feet in the air. And it was this weird rectangle of light. And I thought, well, must be a light reflecting off an airplane or maybe it's even a blimp or something and it's just reflecting the sun in a weird way and finally I just couldn't figure out what it was and I like most teenagers said you know what what the bleep is that right, right. <laughs> <laughs> using a four-letter explicitive right going WTF. What, uh, what? 
right, what the WTF is that? And suddenly, boom, at the moment I ask the question, then it's outside my bedroom window, less than 500 feet away from me, and it's undulating white light, but it's not lighting up my bedroom, it's not lighting up me, but I'm paralyzed, I can't move, I can't run out of the room like I want, and I'm freaked out, and I'm stunned, and I'm shocked. Then suddenly, it takes off. But when it takes off, it's light outside. (laughs) I don't realize it at the time, but it takes off. So I go into the next bedroom next to me. I wake my mother up, who's sleeping in the room next to me, in the bedroom next to mine, who has the same view out her window as I have out mine. And I ask her, you know, I'm screaming at her, actually. I grab her leg and wake her up and go, Mom, Mom, did you did you just see this? And she looks at me and asks me if I'm on drugs. <laughs> oh, no. Right? I'm 19 a, years old. A typical question for a parent to ask. Of course. Of course. Right, Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I'd probably ask the same thing of my daughter if the same scenario <laughs> happened to me. So it stays in my gray box literally for like 25 years. I go back to my room. I go to grab my journal to write it all down. And I know it's 530 in the morning because that's what time it was when I grabbed my journal and I wrote down 530 and it was not light out. And I pick up my journal to write down the story because I don't know if it's a dream or if it's real. And I realize that it's seven o'clock and I've lost an hour and a half of time that I can't account for. And I freak out and I lie down on my bed and I hold my head and I'm shaking and I'm in a fetal position and I'm trying to figure out what just happened because it's like the rubber band snapped, right? This is out reality. Not only what I saw is out of reality, but what I'm experiencing emotionally, psychologically, physically, this dislike and all the energy drained out of me. I was trying to come to grips with it. And I keep saying to myself, don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to sleep. Don't, you know, and I fall right back to sleep because the energy drains right out of me. And I wake up about 10 o'clock that day, uh, three hours later, and I grab the journal and I write it all down. I mean, it's fresh as day as if it had just happened. and. I don't really touch the subject for about 25 years, but I have it in my journal. And I'm I'm wondering, what the heck was this, right? What the heck happened? How could this be? I, You know, I go back uh, periodically, but I just don't know how to make sense of it. 25 years later, I'm visiting a friend in Hawaii who was staying at my house at that time and was asleep on another floor of the house at that time saw the whole thing I saw, but we never talked about it. And we're cooking dinner and smoking cigarettes like like I did in my early 40s, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, drinking wine and cooking and talking. And nice. he okay. says to me, you know, I have a question for you. You, you got to tell me, like, what happened? What happened when we had that UFO experience? And I'm like, what? Like, I drop my glass of wine all over the floor. I take a couple steps back. I go, wait, you know, like, this is really blowing my mind. He said, you don't even open your mouth. He said, you take your pencil, your piece of paper. You go out in the front yard and write your story. I'm going to go out in the backyard and write mine down. And then we're going to exchange stories. I'm going to read yours. You're going to read mine. I said, I want pictures. I said, take your crayons. I want color. I want to know what you saw, right? And basically, we had the same story. 
And that and, and was, this was all in the 70s? Or, oh, I'm sorry, you well, said 25 years later. 25 years later. So that happened in 1975, and I think it was around 1998. Wow. Or gotcha. no, something like that where I went, okay. I think I was there in 1999. I had gone to Hawaii to take my open water paddy certification to become a scuba diver. And uh, then my friend lived in the – in Hawaii, in Maui, where I was. So I, my husband went off to Japan to go to work, to, uh, where he was working at the time. And I went to visit a friend before I was flying home to Philadelphia. And that's what happened. And I remember flying home from Hawaii saying to myself, okay, um, now I know <laughs> that this was real. Okay, so how does that change my psychological perspective? Does it stay unimportant? Does it stay in my gray box or does it change everything? And I just realized that I had a big choice to make. Um, like I said, people who get into this field really need their head examined. And that's true because you become the subject of ridicule, just like Travis. And oh, absolutely. All his hugging crew, right? Yeah. Um, at least, at least until the world we lived in, up until December 16th, I think the world really began to change dramatically then. But um, when you get close to an experience or when you have an experience, I, I describe it as like having a balloon that's full of air and then somebody pops the balloon, right? And it flies around the room, getting rid of its air. You can never put that same air back in that same balloon. You're never going to have that bubble or that reality again. Like reality changes, sort of like how it's changed for a lot of the world in the last, you know, four or five weeks. We're never going to live in the same world again. And my world had certainly changed. And that's when I just said to myself, well, I better learn how to be brave and I better learn how to have, you know, know what what is the solid ground under me and what's not. And how can I begin to start to digest this, educate myself, and then in the process, maybe be lucky enough to educate other people that these sorts of things happen. And um, I'd had enough odd experiences already in my life with things like precognition and um, what you might call maybe a miracle here or there. Uh, I've saved a couple of people's lives from, you know, instantaneous knowledge about car accidents and things like that to uh, to mitigate damages uh, in a very quick, effective way. And I knew how to respond to my own instincts and pay attention to them. So when I began to really digest the options around this, I said, there's no going back. And it's a process of self-education. And I'm going to give myself the benefit. So I promptly came home and uh, decided to do and start, you know, start to read books, go take trips, educate myself, go to conferences, meet different speakers. And uh, I did. I became very good friends with um, Richard Dolan, with Peter Robbins, with Linda Moulton Howe, lived in my own community. We'd already known each other from being in crop circle country together and being in England together. And Linda and I spent a lot of time. I introduced Linda to all my girlfriends. I used to have weekend seminars where she would come over. My husband would be away for three weeks, right, on some trip. And she'd come and spend a couple days. And I'd just cook a bunch of meals, put people to sleep, wake them up, say, Linda's talking again. Come on, let's come back. You know, we'd be outside in the 
hot tub or we'd be in the living room or we'd be in the kitchen and we'd be opening another bottle of wine and we'd be hearing another story from Linda. Um, and those were very special days. I, I cherished them. They were, Ooh. um, yeah, they were know. wonderful. Really, yes, really I, you you and, definitely have to cherish cherish those memories for sure, especially with what's <laughs> going on today. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I, I I actually had a special moment with with Linda and a group of these what I call the goddess friends. We're we're all women in our now in our sixties and seventies, but uh, in May now, now it's now it's the Yaya Club. I guess. Yeah, I guess you could sort of call it that. Well, interestingly enough, my mother used to, she was an insomniac, so she'd be up all night listening to Coast to Coast. So I, I'd get up in the morning and I'd be making coffee and my mother would call me and tell me what she heard on Coast to Coast that night with Linda. So my mother loved her and my mother would invite her to her house all the time too. And so a group of us were at my mother's house in Chestnut Hill, which is not, it's a suburb of Philadelphia. And this was May 5th. In fact, it was the weekend that Stephen Greer was holding his first uh, press conference at the National Press Club. And we were sitting around talking about it. None of us were, were in Washington. We were all in Philadelphia. But we all had a premonition of something weird about to happen. And we were all having strange dreams. And we went around the table and we talked about what our strange dreams were. And this was in 2001, May of 2001. And if you went back and heard our dreams, you would have realized that we were pinpointing 9-11 and we didn't realize it. We were all having premonitions of one aspect of 9-11. Really? Linda was seeing bombs going off and she, she nailed the three cities. She said, I see bombs going off in Washington, Philadelphia, and New York. She said, I see people running. She said, I see some kind of infections going on or, or people exposed to, to dust and they having trouble breathing and they have, you know, washcloths over their mouth and they're running and they're covered with dust like a bomb just went off. And she said, the world is never going to be the same. There's going to be major attacks in our, in our country. And she said, it's going to affect lots of stuff. And then somebody else said, well, I see really strange things happening with the banking industry. And then somebody else said, well, I've been having strange dreams that like there's cameras everywhere and we no longer have privacy. Like people Oof. are peering into our homes, on our computers. Like we think we have privacy, but people are listening into our cell phone calls and everything. And of course, what I was having dreams of is planes crashing. I, I saw plane crashes in every imaginable way you can you can think. I saw, but mostly they were planes that were flying into things like shopping malls and grocery stores, and they were skimming the surface of, of the of the ground. Like it was a jumbo jet, but it was only like 10 feet off the ground, and it was going like 400 miles an hour, which is impossible, right? Because jets can't fly at that speed at that that altitude if you know anything about jet engines and I, so i knew what i was seeing was bizarre and sometimes i was in the plane and sometimes i was on the wing and sometimes i just saw the explosions but as soon as i saw the plane hit 9-11 you know that the towers the trade towers i went oh my that was my dream oh never, my and i knew exactly what was about to unfold i never or, knew that about you <laughs> jennifer by the way you never shared this story here before no, oh, I didn't. But that's one of my very wow. many memories with with Linda Howe. Wow! And okay. uh, my group of girlfriends. So, oh my goodness! Yeah, I know it's sort of off topic. That's okay. Of the trap. 
Well, that's what I was going to get back to asking you about, uh, like what really prompted you to start doing, um, the film about, uh, Travis. Travis. Well, so obviously around 2000, I decided to get involved in, in MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And there wasn't really a functioning group in my territory, you know, at, at Pennsylvania, uh, had, a couple of people involved. I was friendly with them. I went to a couple of meetings with them. But uh, really, Tom Carey, who's a writer, who's written a number of books about Roswell with Donald Smith, he was the um, state section director or the state director at the time, I think, or state section director. And he said to me, Jen, he said, look, you know, why don't you just start a new MUFON group? Because I've been hosting meetings, but really I'm, I'm a researcher and I just really want to write. I don't have the time to run, you know, a MUFON organization. Why don't you start to do some programming? You know, And I said, well, if you come and speak and talk about your book, I'll put a meeting together at the local library. And that's what I did. And I've been doing it every month since then for almost 20 years. Right. And it's the, a great way to learn when you invite a speaker in, um, you know, and have them present and you advertise it in the local paper and you put a flyer up at the local library. You're literally helping to change the world in your own backyard. And you're doing it at the public library where people go to get books and learn and educate themselves. Right. So that's what I started to do. And gradually I got smart about it. And I show films now in the winter months when weather can cause the library to close. So I'm not spending money to bring up a, a speaker in by train or plane or something that then they have to turn around and go home because of weather issues. Um, and so it, it's been a great education for me. So the other thing that I started to do is I started to run conferences. I started to help MUFON Pennsylvania organize conferences and Peter Robbins, whom I became good friends with, he was one of the speakers that came down to present and we became good friends he asked me to be his assistant in Roswell because he was running the Roswell conference for a number of years for the the mayor's organization there. There was Roswell became such a, an event going on because of the very famous Roswell crash, right? And the museum that opened there. It became such an economically important event for the city that the mayors got involved in coordinating their own activities and they hired Peter to to coordinate them. So I was working with Peter and this is where I met Travis Walton. Travis came to speak and present at one of the conferences and this was in 2010. And Peter and I took Travis and his son and a couple of other people out to dinner afterwards. And uh, I even think Ruben Udiarte was there, who's the state director of um, Northern California. And we were sitting around saying to Travis, you know, your story is just as important as the Roswell story, but your story is almost you know, 25, 30 years newer than the Roswell story. Roswell was 47, yours is 75, right? It's almost 30 years later. You should have a conference in Snowflake or, or Heber or Holbrook. I mean, those are small little towns that could really economically benefit from bringing upwards of 10,000 people that attend the Roswell conference now, right? We said, what? <laughs> that's a no-brainer, Travis. Why don't you think about doing it? And Travis basically said, you know, I wrote a book. I know how to speak, it, you know, and go out and make public presentations. But I don't know a darn thing about running a conference, but you two do. Well, you know, why don't you coach me, you know, or, or 
basically he wanted us to run it. And we said, well, we'll coach you, Travis. We'll, we'll tell you what to do. We have a lot of other things we do in our lives, too. And that's kind of how the film started. Travis actually wanted to take people up into the forest at night on the anniversary of his abduction, right? On, and we, we were thinking like five years ahead. We were thinking in 2015, it will be the 40th anniversary of your event. You should have a conference somewhere up in, you know, northern Arizona near where this event took place. And um, we'll we'll help you figure out a way to do it. Like we just kind of all clicked glasses and committed to do it. Right. And I had been a former event coordinator. I used to be a, a party planner in my professional days, um, one of many professional lives I had, but I used to do 40th, 50th, 60th birthday parties. I did weddings, bar mitzvahs. I did funerals. I did small, you know, business conference symposiums, things like that. And I started helping MUFON run their conferences. So I had some experience to bring to the table. And Travis was saying he wanted to take, you know, the whole, everyone who came to the conference, he wanted to take them up into the woods at night and having been out there uh, to explore the place with him, I realized a lot of people, th this is just not going to work. This is a safety issue. I mean, th the forest is not clear of debris. There are holes and gullies. It's not lit. You, you know, how are you going to take 50, 60, 70 people up into the forest at night? What if somebody has to go to the bathroom, right? And they, they head off behind a tree. And before you know it, a wild coyote or a moose has attacked them. You know, <laughs> right. this is just not, this is like, this does not make sense. So I immediately, because I think practically and all my events, I had to have insurance, right? And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to get an insurance policy for this, right? This is like already stretching. And what happens if it snows, right? If we can't get there for snow. So I immediately, and I had been doing film work already, I immediately started to think, okay, what we should do is we should film the area where the event took place. We should gather the boys together who were in the crew, have a little reunion, in the summer, when we can hike out there, we'll drive up to the place, we'll lug our equipment and, you know, our tripods and our mics and our lights and our sound equipment and whatever else we need out to the forest. We'll do as much as we can. We'll stay till dark if we need to. We'll film what we can and we'll make a little movie. I just thought it would be a small little movie we would show at his conference that would then happen, you know, three or four years later. And gradually, I began to realize that what I was capturing on film was better than just a couple of loggers reminiscing about an event that took place 40 years before one night. You know, and then I began to say, hey, you know, is uh, Deputy Ellison still around? Where does he live? And what about, uh, you know, Marlon Gillespie was the sheriff. Could we interview him? And it ended up that I was making several trips back to Arizona, tracking down people like Cy Gilson and getting Travis to get some of his other family members, you know, whom I might be able to interview and all of the, the crew together. And gradually it just turned into something um, better than I thought it could have been. And right on. One, one of the other great things that happened is I was also involved in running um, the 2014 National MUFON Symposium, which was in Philadelphia, actually Cherry Hill, just on the other side of the river 
in 2014. And a number of people that we brought into the conference, I suggested because I had been working with them already on the Travis film, like Stanton Friedman was supposed to be there. He actually had his first heart attack and couldn't come. But then we brought in Ben Hansen. We brought in Lee Spiegel. We brought Peter Robbins was uh, the uh, was coming to that conference. We had Kathy Marden there. These are all people who knew Travis well, and they could speak well to Travis's event. So then I decided, well, I'm setting up a studio in a hotel room, and I'm just going to run these people in and interview them <laughs> and get them uh, as much as I can. And then I made a trip or two back out to Arizona, and that's how I kind of put all these interviews together. Very nice. And Jennifer, I hate to do this, but we are running out of time. And I just wanted I to, yes, I just wanted to quickly mention, uh, when was the last time you talked to Travis? The last time he was here, uh, you remember that he was going very hard on Dr. Michael Shermer, which was pretty entertaining to me personally. But um, what's going on with Travis? When was the last time you spoke to him? Well, I texted him a couple days ago, a television crew uh, wanted to get in touch with them. And as logic will be, uh, Travis is always behind on email. So they end up contacting me and saying, do you have any way to talk to Travis? So I, I usually text him. If we need to speak, we do. But uh, we've actually just released a new version of the film for the 45th anniversary. And so Travis and I have been back in touch a lot about that. And it's in multiple languages as well. So there's subtitles in French, Japanese, Spanish, and Portuguese, as well as English subtitles for the hearing impaired. And that's available at the Travis Walton website. So I've been sending him DVDs so he can sell them as well. And uh, all, all is well. Travis is well in Snowflake and um, he's doing just fine. And he's still, you know, very happy with the documentary. It's I think it's done a lot for people to understand his personal side of the story. Very nice. Well, Jennifer, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the program. And if you would like to. And Mike, were you jumping in there? No, that's my bird. Well, that was the bird. <laughs> <laughs> love, love the parrot there. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that uh, my my bird Kiki is uh, making uh, clicking and whistling and sucking noises. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, but yes, Jennifer, Sorry, always go right an, ahead, buddy. Always an honor and pleasure to have you here. We will definitely do this again. I'm pretty sure. It would be my pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for having me on the air. And be safe. As they say, uh, self-isolate and sanitize. Oh, my. <laughs> but Jennifer, right. go ahead and That's plug anything you'd like, by the way. Go ahead. Um, gosh. Uh, well, I just finished another film with Peter Robbins, and I think it deserves mention. It's called The Extraordinary Life and Mysterious Death of James Forrestal. And it's really Peter's baby. He did 99.9% uh, .9 of the work. I just made it happen in film. And my other co-producer who worked on the Travis Walton project with me named Bob Terrio, who's just been a wonderful support to me. I probably didn't have the courage to start the film uh, but uh, Bob said, oh, we can do this. And he goes, I'll get on a plane with you and fly to Arizona. So I, I just adore Bob. He's been a wonderful support to me for many, many years. So Bob Terrio also worked on the Forestall Project. He did 90% of the editing on it. And um, I helped a little bit here and there, but I really credit Peter and Bob with coming up with this project. And uh, Peter Robbins has it available for sale. You can contact him at his website. I'm letting him sell that project. Um, and maybe that will be streaming soon. Uh, the 
the Travis Walton movie was on Amazon, but we took it down to put the new version up, which will have subtitles on it soon. And that should film hub is helping me put that up and that should be on probably Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and a number of the streaming channels, maybe in a month or two. I'm I'm not exactly sure what the process is going to take until that's up there again. But if people want the film, they can buy a DVD through Travis Walton, the movie.com. Very nice. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's my it's really my pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity to educate the world about this amazing UFO event. And who knows, maybe uh maybe the aliens have something to do with this coronavirus. We, <laughs> there's lots of conspiracy theories going around right now. Oh, I have my. no idea. But I hope that the ones that uh, helped uh, bring Travis back to life are benevolent and they help us see our way through this uh, experience. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. We will talk to you again on the other side. Okay. Thanks for, coming, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good night, boys. You too. Mahalo. Thank you. And there she goes. That was Jennifer Stein. Always an honor and pleasure to have her here. And Mike, it is that time to go on a quick Five-minute recess, and when we return, our boy is here, Dr. Paul Cottrell. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. and girls for the second half of the program and now dr paul cottrell is live and in the building let's bring him in doctor what's going on hi how you doing fantastic i'm glad you are here and i'm glad you are coronavirus free yeah so far <laughs> so far yeah it's a good thing yeah you know mm -hmm. yeah what's going on in new york is you know we're right now uh 
we've been placed in what they call shelter in place. Um, Same here in the state of New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're in. Yeah. My goodness. And Mike, are you still out there alive? Yes, I just wanted to say hello to the doctor once again. Uh, welcome back to the show, and thanks for being a part of this. I'm looking forward to uh, all the grim details you have to tell us tonight. Oh, nice, nice to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> nice to hear from you again. But um, so you're in shelter in place, also? Yes, out here in El Centro, California, I believe that is going to happen very, very soon. There is a state yeah. of emergency going on out here, and four people have tested positive for COVID nineteen, and from what I can remember, three of them got it from traveling outside of the county, and one of them actually caught it here locally. Wow. So that's not I good. I mean, in Manhattan alone, Manhattan alone, we have more than uh, 1,300 cases. Oh, my wow. goodness. Yeah. And New York, New York City is right. over 5,000. Oh, that's not good. I just learned. I just learned on Friday, I believe, that... Uh, where I live on the northeastern part of uh, Pennsylvania, that my county, uh, we've gotten uh, a few. And I, when I say a few, I mean somewhere like less than 20 uh, in, in the county where I live in. And then I also heard the county over, because uh, I live in Wayne County. The other county is um, Pike County. And I believe there's also some... Uh, people who have been infected in that county as well. So it is kind of shocking. And we, we, we have the same situation sort of going on. They're telling us to, you know, stay inside, don't go out, uh, limit to, you know, limit yourself in, in groups, pretty much the same thing. How are you seeing the grocery stores right now? For where I am? Yeah. The only thing I, I saw that was an issue was uh, toilet paper was gone. Otherwise, everything else was there, food, um, and I, I mean a, a decent selection. But you got to remember, I live in a rather rural part of uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, I was able to get everything I needed except toilet paper. That was the only thing they didn't have. The whole shelf was gone. Sold everything out. else was there. Oh, no. What about you, Michael? Everything's good. Everything's good, except most things are kind of empty, uh, most of the bigger stores. And I did have to make my way into a grocery store just recently, and I avoided everyone. I didn't breathe around anyone. I held my breath. And I just <laughs> I just looked at everyone like if they were a potential threat. I just eyed every single man and woman there. I just eyed them all down. Like, get the hell away from me. Like, I was literally ready to attack anybody, to be honest. Which well, wouldn't have been good because if you touch them, that I would know be that. Bad too. Well, I had gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't afraid to get dirty there. But yes, I That's had. Funny. I was prepared. And so, uh, go ahead. Yeah, to, just to put things into context, in the United States alone, here we have uh, twenty over just over twenty six thousand cases right now. Oh man! And and um, to put that in perspective, we are the third largest country to be infected with COVID nineteen. No shit. Wow. Yeah. Italy is second at 53,500 and China, obviously, you know, just over 81,000. Now, what's important here to kind of to, 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 to realize is one, we've always believed that China's numbers have been understated. Right. But if you look at all, if you add up all of the countries in Europe, all right, they're more, they're large. They're, they have more COVID-19 cases, confirmed cases than what China's claiming. Yet China has a much larger population. I mean, Europe, I think, only has about uh, 700 million. Well, China has, you know, 1.2, 1.3 billion. 
Oh, so um, there's no way just by looking at the Johns Hopkins database that China was providing realistic numbers. Um, you, you're talking about or 80 million cases of COVID-19 in China. So uh, when you're looking, when you're comparing it to what we're seeing on the database right now, um, but I don't know if you, you've seen Michael, some of the stuff that I've published recently in the I last have. two or three days. Yes. There's been some research papers that have been coming out that I've been dissecting a little bit. Um, there are multiple receptors that this virus is attacking now that it's attaching to. It's not just the ACE2 that we've been talking about. I was going to say the ACE2. You know, three of your program. Mm-hmm. The ACE2 receptor. Right, right. It's not just the ACE2 receptor. It's now what we call uh, CD147, uh, GRP78. It involves a protease that is um, endogenous to our cells called furin, that if furin is upregulated and next to these receptors, it actually makes the virus 1,000 times more likely to come into the cell through endocytosis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there has been a research paper that came out from uh, China that talks about DC sign and L sign receptors. They're also called respectively uh, CD209 and CD299. They, and this is very interesting. They are, and this might be part of the reason why we see the numbers uh, splitting up so quickly yeah. in, in Italy, in Iran, and in the United States. CD209 and CD299, um, they are upregulated in elderly. And they are upregulated in Caucasians. Interesting. And here's something that's even scarier. Remember we were talking about on the first show about the HIV homology on the spike protein? That's right. All right. So just so your listeners your listeners know, there are four inserts that we uh, that uh, have HIV, HIV homology. Three inserts dealing with the, the glycoprotein 120, which is the spike protein of AIDS of, of, uh, HIV virus, uh, retrovirus. Um, so pieces of that are in the spike protein of the coronavirus, but also the, the fourth insert comes from something called, uh, HIV dash one gag, which is involved in the capsid assembly. Uh, what's interesting is the spike protein of HIV virus attaches to L sine or the CD 299 receptor. So I've been looking for for a while, for the last five, six weeks. Why was there that HIV homology? And I am starting to have the working hypothesis that that HIV homology was put in there to be able to attach to the L-sign receptor. Absolutely. So, Paul, and, go ahead. You know, so so this, is, this, this might be part of the reason why we're seeing Caucasian number uh, – numbers climb, you know, in Western, in Western countries climb so fast compared to uh, some of the Asian countries. Like for example, South, South Korea, I mean, they had the, last we talked, I mean, they were right near the top. They were up there, Mm -hmm. you know, but right now they're only at 8,900. So we blew past Mm. them. (laughs) We blew past them two days ago. Yes, we did. So that is, well, I think it's the receptors. It's, it's, we're upregulating this CD2 uh, 99 and, and CD209 uh, receptor that this, that this supercharged spike protein on the, on the coronavirus is attaching to, not just the ACE2. Yes, that's- it, what I'm saying here is, is that this thing is targeting 
at this moment in time, it looks like it's targeting elderly and whites. My goodness. Caucasians. Earlier in the program, and, I mentioned and, Italy, by the way, and I, and I just mentioned that Italy, the reason why we're seeing those numbers so high is because of the um, elderly population there. They have the highest. But you're saying this is definitely just attacking. Well, it, it's a lot more serious for those that are Caucasian. There's, it's a multiple. See, here's the thing is it's not one thing. So, you know, a lot of times that we, we want to just have what's the what's the cause and effect. Mm-hmm. We don't usually think of multiple variables involved here. Part of the problem with with geriatric um, care in, in terms of COVID-19 is, is that they already have comorbidity issues. They already have heart disease. They already have, you know, maybe dysfunctional yeah, liver right. preconditions. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So so we call it uh, comorbidity. So uh, they have other conditions uh, that causes a problem. But the way this virus seems to be working, at least based on the, the, uh, current research that's out there, which will, ch- which might change, you know, which is, we can, o- we're, we're on the battlefield with the fog of war. So we can only work with what we got. But the picture seems to be that, uh, the primary receptor is the ACE2, right. which deals with, with, uh, with, uh, the air sac, um, primarily the air sac, uh, cells. Um, but ACE2 is in other tissues. But through this new research that's been been released, there are four other receptors that this can attach to and affect. And this may explain why we're seeing um, downregulation of the immune system, because CD209 and CD299, they are involved in um, immune immune cells. So um, c- 299 also is involved in lung lung cells but it, the main point here is is that it's not just one receptor so if you have more doors that you can get into the house it's going to be easier to get into the house right? absolutely yeah but now just imagine this as this virus is starting to mutate uh, and have less affinity to let's assume that the, the strongest affinity that it has is for the ace2 receptor as it's losing affinity normally, over time, a virus will attenuate in the population and it will just live in the population and won't be, it will be minor, it will be benign. Well, if you have a lot of receptors that a virus can attach, it can lose affinity for one and gain affinity later for others. We have now found the mechanism and why we can see a, a stronger secondary or tertiary wave months down the road here, six, eight months, 10 months down the road. But what scares me even more and some people that are, you know, are in the realm of of uh, the more esoteric or more, you know, uh, psychic. There has been some talk years ago of a psychic that said that there was going to be a um, a a, um, a a major pandemic that would happen uh, around this time period. This was about 10, 15 years ago. This person, I think it was a female. Weird. Um, that said that there was going to be something that was going to happen. Um, Bill Gates and, also was someone who was talking about this four years ago on Ted talk, if you recall. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's, there, there was a legitimate psychic that actually predicted this, but you know, 15, about oh, 15 years ago. That's maybe, still wild. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I don't think the psychic is alive anymore. No, but okay. But I don't even know her name, but I'm sure that people that are listening to this show, maybe could put it in the, into the, they'll probably the, figure it out. Comments yeah. one, once. Yeah. But, um, What's interesting is what the person said. Not it, it, they said that this virus that hits us now is going to spike and then and then go away. Sylvia Brown. 
Is that who you're referring Sylvia to? Sylvia Brown? Is it? Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't, I'm not. Maybe. It, I don't know. I see. Okay. But but either way, whoever it is. But the, the point is, is that it was going to spike and, and, and go away. But it's 10 years later where it rear its head in much more virulence. And I believe what's going to happen is not exactly how she said it. I think that this will last for 18 months to 20 months, possibly with a, uh, a very strong secondary and tertiary wave, similar to what was happening with the Spanish flu of 1918. But I am really concerned, Michael and Mike. So am I. And, and you know, that, that, that in 10 years, it will gain function and become, have a stronger affinity with those immune cell receptors. Because in effect, what we have here is it, it's similar to HIV. It's not a retrovirus. So it doesn't use that mechanism, but it's using the common cold kind of type virus. A, corona, a coronavirus is a common cold virus, but the more virulent strains are the SARS. We're dealing with a SARS virus. The actual scientific uh, term for COVID-19 disease is SARS-CoV-2. So it is in the scientific community defining this virus as SARS. Um, but it's using the spike mechanism to attack certain cells using that glycoprotein 120 pieces of it, homology pieces of HIV, glycoprotein 120 to attack these L sign receptors. That's where my eye is right now. Yeah, you know, I usually, you know, I'm, you know, I was born and raised in Detroit. So, you know, Detroit, you know, Detroit hockey, you know, right. You know, right. Detroit Red Wings. So what, what, you know, with the phrase, you, you don't, you don't skate to where the puck is. You skate to where the puck will be. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So I'm skating to where I think it's going and I think it's going DC sign L sign receptors. Ooh, that's not good news. And folks. I'm, I, you, yeah, so what we're that's where I'm at right now. And to add a little cherry on top of this, all this, oh, good. there was a re research paper that was released by a, I think, a, an associate professor from uh, South Carolina, um, from the School of, of Public Health. And he released a paper on, I think it was published on February 27th. And it, it was dealing with um, this very issue about the receptors. It was more on the bioinformatics side. So they were studying the bioinformatics of receptors and people that have um, COVID-19. There was another a research paper that's on my website. I forgot who wrote it. That's dealing with blood type. And it seems to be, China did the study. It had 1,075 patients that had COVID-19. And they did a correlation study. doesn't mean it's causation. It's just correlation study. And they correlate and they, they, they found that individuals that are blood type A have more susceptibility to COVID-19 disease. And if you are blood type O, you have less risk. Now, that's just correlation. It doesn't mean causation. Could have been just a statistical, you know, um, artifact, you know, but there seems to be at this moment in time with that one paper, um, something to do with blood type and susceptibility. Now, the way blood, the red blood cells work is, is that they have certain types of antigens on it. So if you have blood type A, you have antigen A. If you have blood type B, you have antigen B. But if you're blood type O, you don't have the antigen. No, no. So it's possible, it's possible that the red blood cell is maybe some sort of protein carrier. It's maybe, a, you know, a viral carrier. 
Is is um, that is that O positive, O negative, or just O? What would that be? I I don't know if there is a distinction between positive or negative uh, related to the blood type. I just saw um, the distinction between the overall A, B, AB, or O. The reason I bring it up and not to interrupt you is is because I'm, I'm from what I understand, type O is a very rare type of blood. Is it not? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It is? Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. No, no, no. So, so, you know, so I'm thinking that maybe it's a, maybe some type of protein carrier or viral carrier. Um, and it allows for, you know, increased infection that it can maybe attach to the A antigen and, and carry around. Or it could be that people that have, uh, blood type A, um, their, their genomic makeup, their phenotypic makeup just, um, just by by happenstance uh, upregulates these receptors that the the coronavirus is using. So we don't know really the mechanism of why, but it's an interesting cor- correlation study. So if is. you if you're O, you're you're a little bit if you're o, if you're O uh Asian female, you're probably on the good side of, the, of this coronavirus. Probably. If you happen to be type A uh uh male Caucasian that smokes um, you're really on the bad you're side. You're in trouble. Yeah. My so, goodness. Um, in my predictions right now are uh, pretty grim. I, I stated this on Stefan Molyneux's show the other day and on my channel. Um, I believe unless chloroquine, chloroquine um, works with, uh, with strong antibiotics as a synergistic effect, unless that works, this is what I think is going to happen in the United States. I think 165 million people are going to be getting COVID-19 disease in 20 month time horizon. And about 27 million will be seriously ill and about 6.9 million will probably perish from complications to COVID-19 because of un- other underlying diseases. I was afraid you'd say that. that. 6.9 million. Yes. Worldwide or, or no, 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 no. Just in, in the America? United States. Yeah. Holy Just shit. in the United States. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's Thanks what for I think. Ruining is, my day. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just. But the thing is, is here. Here's the here's the big assumptions. One, the chloroquine doesn't work with the with the strong antibiotics. Two, that the second that the secondary and tertiary waves have the same virulence. And three, um, uh, you know that the the um, the health the understanding of our current health in the United States, I'm assuming about 50% of the population is unhealthy, either with diabetes, um, obesity, heart disease, um, or just, you know, that fall in the elderly category. Uh, I think that's a pretty safe assumption, though, you know, because the United States, you know, we haven't been that healthy of a nation. Well, not at all. Um, a bunch of diabetics. Yeah, so, I, mean, I think, I think honestly, you know, that, but the thing, my hope, there is some hope, you know, and that hope is is that either remdesivir or uh, chloroquine uh, will be um, a therapeutic to be able to slow this thing down as the population starts to have by, by time to develop natural antibodies for this. So that's good news. I mean, there yeah, is so some I'm getting, light yeah, at the end right. of the tunnel here. Yeah, I, I'm get you know I'm you know there is you know I stated my assumptions you know if if they don't work if these therapeutics don't work. 
then I think it's very realistic to see those numbers that I stated. By the way, um, uh, Paul, I just wanted to quickly mention Nigeria reported yeah. chloroquine poisonings as uh, Trump keeps pushing the drug against the coronavirus. That's what a article was stating not that long ago. Did you read that? Yeah, you know, so that, yeah, so, you know, here, here's the problem is, is that some of the data is showing a lot of success. Some of the data is saying not so much. Now, again, the study that people are referencing just recently, and it, it, it sort of broke on Tucker Carlson's uh, um, uh, news broadcast a couple of days ago. It was only on 40 patients. And, you know, it, there are so many different cohorts of patients. You don't know exactly all of the dynamics. What kind of diseases did they have? What were their age, you know, ages? What were their ethnicities? So it, as we're learning more about the, the possible mechanisms and how the, it's an, infecting the cell by all these different receptors and upregulation of furin to make it 1,000 times more virulent, um, it, it's, it's possible that we just need a larger study to understand that chloroquine might only work for certain types of patients and not for others. But what's interesting is it's a chemical that actually uh, marine biologists have known for a long time. It, it, it's also used for, for anti-malarial uh, right, right. Uh, treatment. But what's, what's interesting is if, if people are in, you know, the whole fish tank, um, you know, world, um, if your fish are getting, you know, viral infection, you put this in the water and it will help the fish fight the, the viral infection. Yes. Yeah, so this has been known in the marine biology world for a while. Correct. Mike, go ahead. I was just going to say, I used to have fish tanks and yeah, if you had a problem with some sort of a, uh, contaminated water, you would just get this, this antibiotic. I got to be honest. I never knew what it was called. I would just get it and put it in the fish tank and it would mm -hmm. clean up the issue. But what you're saying, doc, is, uh, it's just fascinating. And, and the whole night, Michael and I talking about this with our other guest, Jennifer, it's just been, it's, it's really, <laughs> You know, now that you've come on and given this bit of information, it's just I'm about to fall off my chair. I mean, it, this is a real serious issue. And another thing I mentioned earlier on in the program was hydroxychloroquine. And that's another drug. I'm not quite sure if that's going to be effective or not. Uh, Paul, have you looked into it at all? Well, when I say chloroquine, you it's the, that's the hydroxychloroquine. Okay, okay I yeah. see. The, the real, the, right. And that's usually used with a, a strong uh, antibiotic. So the chloroquine is the antiviral. And then normally when you have these this deep pneumonia, it's a combination of a viral infection and a bacterial infection. So they found that this, there's a synergistic effect of using the hydroxychloroquine and, the, and um, strong antibiotics. Which is something that we talked about on your first show. We sure did. Stating that when you get infected, assuming it was only the ACE2 receptor at that time, um, that once you get infected, you'll have the virus infection, but you'll have all this mucus and, and, and inflammation, and it will disrupt your natural microbiota in your in your lung tissue and and set a cascade of, of bacterial growth. So you, you have to fight bacterial infection plus a viral infection. And this is why I think this synergistic um, approach, antiviral and, you know, strong antibiotics at the beginning to fight this is probably the right way to do it. And I'm hoping that this type of therapeutic 
this or maybe in conjunction with uh, remdesivir when it goes through the clinical trials uh, helps because I'm really scared, as we mentioned before, about this messenger RNA, RNA um, uh, uh, vaccine pr- uh, platform. It's new. There's not a lot of long-term data on, you know, if you take it, if you, you know, get a vaccine that's from the messenger RNA platform, uh, is there 10 years, 20-year effects, especially with oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes? Doc, so, have- and we just don't know. A question for you, Doc. Uh, yeah. Now you're you're saying uh, like there could be some sort of uh, a repercussion from this this um, uh, this uh, what did you call it? I'm sorry that um, the cure that they that they haven't put out yet. You said that there could be a ten or twenty year repercussion. What could that repercussion be? Do you have any idea? Well, from the biological side, if we don't attack this virus early. And get the, the, the total viral load in the population down to a minimum, you're going to have the probability of it mutating, gain function, and be, have more affinity to these other receptors that I was talking about. So we're so just basically, we could have strong. this hap, it, we could have, so let, all right. So what's happening today? What we're, 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 we, we have huge infections across the world. Um, we're, we're our economies are collapsing. It'll eventually attenuate, uh, go away. And I envision it coming back, gaining function five, 10 years later. My and God, seeing the exact strong. same thing, ha- seeing the exact same thing happen where you have the high death rates, the high, you know, the high infection rates and, you know, a, t- a total, you know, everything will have to, uh, the whole economy crashes again. So, so here's, here's my worry is, is that that BioPatriot Act that we were talking about earlier. Is that here's a mechanism where governments may say, we are so afraid of it gaining function. We're going to start forcing the vaccine program. This is why trying really hard that that hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir is out in the public to try to prevent that biopatriot act. Right. Because, you know, I see that if we, if that fails, I think we're we are going right down the road of the Biopatriot Act and losing our civil liberties, and, and we're going to have forced vaccinations. And that's exactly what I mentioned to you. I think the first time we talked, and I hate to say this, Paul, but all the things that we've discussed over uh, these past weeks has come to fruition, and it is frightening to say the least. Right, right. I mean, we we said on the first program, you know, it was going to there was going to be a lot of infections going to be a lot of death and there's going to be a, a total collapse of the economy. And not only that, you're starting to see uh, already on uh, mainstream uh, media in the United States where you have nurses and doctors almost crying when they're being interviewed. That's right. That they're, they're at the near the, they're near collapse in some, in, in some regions of the country. And I stated that once we hit over a thousand infected eight weeks later, you're going to have a collapse of of medical care and it, you go from a 21st century medicine to 16th century medicine that's also something in, you talk in, about in yes. certain in certain areas of the, of the of the country you know the high density areas in in more rural areas where you have less infection you won't have that issue but like new york i can see i can see us collapsing our medical system collapsing easily in in three weeks yeah i could see that easily happening as well this is just uh, terrible all around, but of course we do have some of the smartest people around working, just 
just tirelessly trying to find a cure for this or some sort of treatment for this. It's really uh, devastating to even uh, take it all in, really. Um, you know, Paul, I don't, I don't think I've told you this, but I have a friend of mine, um, several friends of mine actually living in all places in California. And I have a friend of mine particularly who is a programmer. And for the longest time, he would go into bars and just do his work there. And I haven't talked to him in weeks. And this is someone who gets back to me right away. So I don't know what's going on with him, but I fear the worst, uh, Paul. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, I, I, there's a lot of people um, starting to know individuals that are f- affected uh, or their family members are affected with COVID-19. Um, it's it's going to get worse. I mean, when I say 100, 165 million people in 20 months is going to get COVID-19 to some degree, where the far majority is going to be benign, but 27 million are going to have serious infection. Uh, everyone is going to know someone. Soon enough. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, I, so Doc, yeah, go Doc in, in your professional opinion, is there anything that people can do to uh, – to protect themselves. Uh, and by that, I mean, if you go out and just get yourself one of those face masks, um, you know, that they use in the hospital rooms, is would that at least help? It would help a little bit. You know, it would help a little bit. But, you know, we did talk about before, you can still get it in your eyes. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't even take the mask off properly. So you can just infect yourself um, by contaminating your hands when you're taking the mask off improperly. Um or a lot of people are running out of masks and they're not disinfecting the masks correctly. That's what's going on. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, will it help? Yes. But that's assuming, you know, one, you know, that you don't get the infection through your eyes and, you know, there's p- proper, you know, removal of the mask and, and, and proper cleaning of the mask. Um, there's a whole protocol. I mean, I mean, pe- I mean, in the medical community, I mean, there's when they're when they're in these, uh, you know, level three suits. I mean, there's a whole protocol on how to take it, you know, how to put it on and how to take it off to, to reduce infection. Um, I'm, I am a very, very concerned that we're going to have our first responders start to get sick. And we saw this in China. Uh, and. You know, when they're when they're sick, they're out for a minimum of 14 days minimum. So think about a nurse and a doctor, how many patients they see in a day. So every nurse and doctor that's taken out of the system, that's how many patients they can't see. We're, we're understaffed on nurses and doctors. That, that's a known fact. And, you know, and they're already calling up, you know, retirees, you know, that, you know, you know, ex nurses, ex doctors to come that are willing to, to, to help um, to, 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 to fight this. Now, uh, there are three layers of this. There's the primary uh, um, um, boundary, which is like the hospitals. The secondary, which is what we're starting to hear about the stadiums and, and the uh, and um, you know these uh, community centers where they're they're putting in beds, and then the tertiary boundary, which is going to be the military bases. And you know, there's about thir- I think there's 11, 11, 11 or thirteen of them that have been designated weeks ago, that if the secondary system starts to fail, um, then they'll activate the bases to, to start housing um, cases. Now, we're already seeing in New York the worry that the primary system is going to fail and that um, uh, Governor Cuomo is, is, is starting to institute policies to 
put beds in in um, um, in venues in 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 the area uh, to house patients, similar to what we were seeing on the internet with with China. So we are we will see in the near near future. I would say within two weeks, um, the populating of the secondary um, the boundary because of the overflow from the hospitals. Yeah, it's just um pretty wild to take it all in. And that's what I think a lot of Americans are doing right now. They're barely coming to that realization that uh, the world has changed overnight, Paul. And to add in, to add it, to add to this, you know, just, you know, like the pathogen wasn't enough. The economic stress. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I mean, the S&P 500 is going to 1700. Okay. It was at 30, it was at 3,300 or so um, at, at the, at the, the height of it. That's a huge drop. And not only that, it's not unfathomable to, to think that 50% of or more of the country is going to get laid off. That's depressionary. Right. Now, what does that mean with the central banks intervening to make sure that they backstop the, the, the whole financial system? And what does that mean with, you know, huge fiscal stimulus? Um, I'm not really sure. We're, we're, we're in uncharted territory. Oh, yeah. You know, this is there, there was lessons to be learned from the quantitative easing to uh, that happened right after Lehman. Um, but we're starting to see this is the worry that I have not just the virus. But I'm, I'm worried about that. Some of these socialistic policies that are starting to creep up. You know, here's a thousand dollars a month or more um, to backstop. You know, there's no there, there's moratoriums on 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 foreclosures. And a lot of these things are needed. I'm not saying they're not needed. And, and I think on your show, we, we talked about some things that, you know, that needed to be loan extensions yeah. for, for mortgages and, and, uh, make sure that people aren't, aren't, uh, pushed out of their rental properties and stuff. So, um, but it's very similar to Alice Shrug by Anne Rand. If anyone either watched the movie or read you know, a very big book, um, you know, it, it, the whole, that, that whole, the, the whole uh, playbook is in and ran. You had, you know, really important industrialists. They just check out. And that's where they said, you know, we're, you know, who's John Galt? You know, that, that was the code, you know, them just checking out and going to the island. We hear billionaires, you know, just kind of like leaving, you know, like Bill Gates. <laughs> Everyone stepping know? down. All sorts of CEOs. Yeah, or, from or, or even uh, uh, Jack uh, Dorsey. Jack from Dorsey. Twitter, yeah, and said that you know several months ago he said he was going to go to Africa. I mean, how did he know? It was as if he was told something was going on. Well, look at all the insider trading that w- went on. Mm-hmm. My God, mm-hmm. even with the with the with the senators, yeah. Huh? I mean, you know, or even you know, you know, even above the senators, you know. But there was a lot of insider trading. Um, I agree with you on that. Uh, you know, I told people that were listening to my channel dump their their, their stuff. Stocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told them two weeks ago, dump it, that it wasn't, you know, and, and it's, some people, they have it in like a 401k, so they, they really can't pull it out until they retire. But when you sell stock, you can hold it in a money market. I think that's a safer bet right now than holding any stock. But um, I'll, I'm, I'm worried about the socialism that's creeping in. So you get this, you, you, you know, it's, it just seems like Ayn Rand playing out in the United States. And, uh, I, you know, I think people like Bill Gates, when everything's said and done, we'll get past this. 
You know, it's not going to be the end of the world. I don't think it, so it either. We'll, yeah. make, we'll, we'll get past this, but we're, we're, we might see more than 6 million people die in 20 months in the United States, you know, due to complications to COVID-19. Independent of if they put on the death certificate, died from COVID-19 or died from heart disease because they had COVID-19, it doesn't matter. It was complications of COVID-19. Um, but I'm not really sure where the, where the country will be. Will we be as capitalistic as we were? Um, you know, will we still have our, 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 our freedoms that are, that are protected in the constitution? I'm very concerned about these things, especially when it comes to with the, you know, the BioPatriot Act. So uh, that that's, will we survive this? Yes. The far majority of the people will survive this physically, but what kind of country will we have at, at the end of this? And this is why I'm asking. Yeah. This is why I'm asking everybody, everyone that listens, you got to get engaged. You can't just, just sit at home, even though we're in, a lockdown right now, we can still call our, our representatives and tell them you're, con- you know, yeah, you know, that you will abide by the, the, this quarantine policy for right now, because that will slow down the infection. That's an important component to this on top of the chloroquine and, and, um, and the remdesphere. Um, but you have to tell your representative that you're worried about the social you know, the socialism that's creeping in. Um, you're worried about the BioPatriot Act, the erosion of our civil liberties, um, forced vaccination program. And with the carnage that we're seeing in the, in the economy, there is a very strong possibility they decash our society by convincing the public that dollars and coins could spread disease and therefore everything has to go digital. And when they do that, they have moved all of the money supply into the banking system. See, part of the money supply is in our pocket. It's in our wallet. Yeah, right. If you don't like the bank, you can just move the money out of the bank and put it under your mattress. They give you problems. That, you know, well, you can't withdraw so much in one day, but you can eventually get all your money out of the bank if you wanted to. Yeah, it's possible. Right. But when it goes deep, when they decash, you're forever in the system. And then you add in 5G where, you know, it's a, you know, ultra surveillance and social scoring. And I call it the never ending tyranny. So this is why I think it's an opportunity, you know, even though we're, we're bugging in, you know, and, and, and contained in, 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 in our homes for 14 days or maybe longer, or maybe 30 days. Uh, I, I see it as a great opportunity to get a little angry at your representatives and say, Hey, you know what? Ever since nine 11, we've been seeing our civil liberties erode. That's true. Since the, since the Patriot Act. And there is a high potential of seeing other civil liberties erode because of this, our financial civil liberties and our biological civil liberties. We should be able to decide if we want our money in a bank or not. Decaching will prevent us from doing that. We should be able to determine if we want a vaccine or not. We should not be forced. You know, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a medical ethical issue there when they're forcing vaccines. Now, I have a question. A, I have yeah, a question ahead, about that. Why? Why do you feel that way about the vaccine vaccinating uh, people uh, uh, per se against their will? Why? Why is that a problem? Because uh, one, there's not enough testing on, especially this new platform, messenger RNA platform. It's new. 
it's there's not a lot of vaccines. There's not a long term data on how it affects our our genome. Doesn't okay. And 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 not only that, when you're dealing with a messenger RNA platform, you can sneak something in. If you attach a, a transcriptase on the messenger RNA platform, you have you have effectively given your given the population a retrovirus, and retroviruses in, integrate into the genome, hmm. and you know, and, you know, if you want to go into that old dark road of conspiracy, um, that is a great mechanism, a great platform to, you know, to do genetic engineering on the population. So right. I'm scared of it. I'd much rather have the older type of vaccinations that are uh, the attenuated vaccines um, or the inactivated um, viruses that are, are put into, you know, into our um into our system and then we try to build antibodies to. Here's the problem with, I, I'm not pro or anti-vax. Um, as I'm preparing for medical school, I, I recently have been forced vaxxed on uh, hepatitis B shot and um, on influenza. All of my antibodies, you know, are, are, you know, at their correct levels on the other vaccines like measles and rubella and whatnot. But um, here's the problem. There is a profit motive for the companies to have never ending amounts of, of vaccines and scare the public that every single disease needs to have a vaccine for it. And then you see, you know, with young children, uh, the scheduling. I'm Gen X and I, I honestly never knew anyone on the spectrum in elementary school or high school. All right. So that's the seventies and eighties. Okay. But. Today, it's not uncommon to have two or three students within an elementary school classroom to be on the spectrum for autism. Something happened in 1986 where you had higher autism rates. Questions why? And I think that the problem is, is that the vaccines, the concept of vac vaccination, I, I understand and I agree with, but I don't think there's enough, uh, th there's not enough data that proves that there are um, antagonistic effects when you're adding a lot of different vaccines together, so close together, especially in young children. There's a lot of there's a lot of preservatives in this stuff, so they can they can be shelved and shipped. Um, there's a lot of uh, adjuvants that, that what that does is it it's um, it's not just the the virus that they're putting in or, you know, a, a inactivated virus that's in the, in, in the vaccine, but there are things in it to, to stimulate your immune system to start producing antibodies. Well, we're finding out that some of these things could be toxic, especially for neural, you know, for, uh, you know, for a central nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, so safer vaccines are important. Uh, we don't have a third party saying, yes, what you're stating should be in that vaccine is in there and that what is in it is safe. What we have is a company that has a profit motive that is proving to the government that's willing to give them a waiver that there's no tort law if they harm anyone. Well, where's the incentive? If you don't have any tort law, where's the incentive for the company to make sure that they're making safe vaccines? So there's a, there's a whole slew of problems with the vaccine program in the United States. I'm not saying that it that vaccines are bad. Some vaccines are really really important and really good. But the way we administer and the way we manufacture these, I think, could be way better. And we just need to be smarter with this. 
instead of um, being more focused on the profit motive. Because if the if the biotech companies get their way, they would pump every kid with thousands of vaccines. And we have no idea what that means, especially to a young child as they're developing, you know, their their neurological system. Absolutely. So that's why I'm 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 worried about it. Yeah, it's pretty frightening, no doubt. Mike, are you okay out there? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sorry guys. I got um my whole computer shut down. It, it, it did the same thing it did uh, last week, Michael. You probably need um, to update it. That's why it, that happens. Possibly. Yeah. Well, yeah. by the way, Paul, you mentioned 5G, and that's something that's been talked about uh, so much as of now. And you actually talked to a woman that was talking about 5G and, and QAnon, of all things. Um, my goodness. That, <laughs> well, you know. You know so, so yeah. Well, there's. Let me let's set the record straight, okay? <laughs> Please <laughs> set do. the record straight because I say some crazy stuff on my channel. So do I. But let me say this. Let me say, let me let me set the record straight. Um, I don't believe that 5G activates the virus or 5G created a waveform that creates the virus. What I do believe is that 5G can affect the immune system somehow. We're what that mechanism about, we're is? We're talking about radiation, right? The the weight yeah the radiation from the the um, the electromagnetic uh, wave that's coming from the five G um, towers five G phones right from yeah the five G phone, phone right. from the phones from the towers and I from your 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 I like modem I completely agree yeah. with you because I I said the same thing that these are going to cause problems I can't understand why they don't have a limitation on what they're releasing I mean it's it's going to be dangerous isn't it Yeah well here's the weird thing about it. 4G, if you, if you took two cadavers and you put a little sensor, you cut the cadavers in half, all right, the, the chest, cut them in half, all right? I know this sounds gory, but, you know, I'm into medicine. Now bring it so, on, so, man. Bring it on. Right, so, so, you cut, so you cut you cut the torso <laughs> in half, all right? And you put a sensor right, right in the middle, and you had two cadavers that are like this. One cadaver has the 4G, and the other cadaver has the 5G. Literally, the 4G will go through more tissue than the 5. The, the 4G will go through more tissue deeper into the tissue than 5G. So the reason is, is the the wave, the frequency is higher on 5G than 4G. Um, this is why they have to cut down trees and the the towers have to be closer together because you can interfere 5G easier than 4G. Oh, I but didn't know that. but yeah, but so you can get deeper into the tissue. But the thing is, is that there is more energy um, because of the frequency uh, with 5G. So you may be disrupting at the topical layer, layer more with 5G than 4G. So, I again, I don't know the mechanism, but I do think that 5G is disrupting the immune system where it's, it's possible that for certain individuals – new cancers will pop up. I'm glad now, you said if you, that. If you, watch, if you watch what's been going mm -hmm. on with children that are by uh, towers, like 5G towers, there's been cases where they get strange cancers. Cancers, right. The school, yeah, where the school's, you know, right next to these, these towers. Now, yeah. is that just a statistical artifact or is there some sort of causation there? I don't know. There's not enough data again, you know, but, but if it looks like a duck and it, acts like a duck, we need to think it's a duck until further yeah. 
you know, proof. Absolutely. So I'd be, I'm very skeptical of the safety of 5G. I think it affects the immune system. And when you affect the immune system, then other diseases will pop up. We know we have uh, uh, natural killer cells in our immune system that actually eats cancer. But there's times when those cancer cells could evade those cells and it, you know, you, you have tumor growth. So if you if you bring down your immune system, it it makes a lot of logical sense that you would have more cancers. Um, In this case, with the the coronavirus, um, I think it's possible that it it affects our immune system and it's just harder to fight any infection. Right. I I could see that for sure, Doc. But some people are just blaming 5G for this. They're not saying well, they're saying the virus is fake. I'm not, I'm just, just really stupid. Um, you know, 5G radiation is, uh, well, just radiation is not contagious. It doesn't transmit person to person. I mean, that's just right, kind of common right, sense. Right, and more right, people right, would be. It's not, it's, yeah, right. It's not the, it's not the contagion. Exactly. Uh, 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 function. It's, it's, you know, but it can lower your immune system. I believe that. If that, you do yes. have a pathogen in your society, it'll spread quicker. Look at uh, look at the high tension wires that have caused leukemia to so many people that are living, you know, right I, right near them. When I lived in Jersey, I, every time I would pass an area where there were high tension wires, there's houses right near them and underneath them. And I've heard so many bad things about people getting leukemia and Lord knows what other kind of uh, cancer as a result of uh, being right next to a power line. Yeah. Well, here's. Mm-hmm. I, I agree here's, with you. Here, I, Go ahead. Oh, well, I'll just jump in really quickly here and just say this. If 5G was really causing the issues, I think more people would have like thyroid cancer, right? If you, if you're exposed to a lot of it, you'd have, what's it called? I'm, I might even, I think I might even be wrong even saying this, but wouldn't you have like iodine 131 that, that causes thyroid cancer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, 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 you're right. I mean, certain other cancers should be popping up more often. Exactly. So that's why I'm saying this is that we don't know really what the mechanism is mm. if it is lowering the immune system. But what is interesting is individuals that use Bluetooth mm-hmm. or hold the phone to their ear all the time and they're not using like, uh, you know, cancer. just, yeah, yeah, they're getting these gliosis. They, they're getting a, these either gliosis or they're uh, glioblastomas. So the gliosis is is like scarring tissue Shit. based on, you know, in, in the brain. But you can also have gli, uh, uh, glioblastoma, which is the glia cell actually turns t- into a tumor. And it's very deadly. I mean, that right. you can die very quickly on that. There were, there were people getting, uh, from what I understand, testicle uh, cancer uh, from having phones either in their laps when they drive or in their pockets. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was going on for a while well, too. There, there, there's, there's been evidence of even uh, police officers with those ray guns where right. if the ray gun is, you know, by their, you know, for speeders, you know, right. if it's by their, you know, their private area that they, they'll get the testicular cancer. Wow. Oh, brother. We're just so, full of happy subjects tonight, aren't we? We sure are. <laughs> Cutting up bodies. And <laughs> no, no. The, now, the bigger worry I have with 5G isn't so much the, the, the biological part. I'm worried about the, the surveillance technology. Yeah. See, that you know, when you start adding in social scoring and triangulation and, and uh, GPS and, and monitoring of, of individuals in society – 4G can monitor us, but it's usually lagged and it's not, it, and it's, it doesn't do a real good job of knowing 
your network that you affiliate with. But with 5G, it will not only real-time your activities with everything you do, banking, you know, walking around, everything you do, but your secondary, your, 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 your uh, um, one degree of separation and your two degree of separation network. So it can triangulate that. more. It has, it, it can work with that metadata at a quicker, at a quicker rate. And it, it, it just gives, this is why I'm so against the Patriot Act and the BioPatriot Act, that it will give so much power to the NSA that we, that's, that's why I'm begging people. It's time to wake up and say enough is enough and that we need to roll back to a pre 9-11 day in terms wow. of, you know, our civil liberties and this, and the, this, uh, uber surveillance that's in our society. Well you know, said. You know, I, I was, I was planning on, uh, I'm going to call Governor Cuomo's office, you know, soon here. And I'm going <laughs> to say, do. Hey, you know, thank you very much for, you know, telling the, telling the state, you know, to, to get ready for, <laughs> for the Wuhan virus. Yeah. But, uh, it was a little too late because I asked you a long time ago <laughs> to, you know, to look into the cases that were in, in Buffalo and I got crickets. But, um, but what are you doing to making sure that the NYPD doesn't have drones uh, surveilling uh, people living in Manhattan. Why do why does the NYPD need drones? I mean, I mean, why is my tax dollars going to this? I mean, we have that many bad guys. Yeah, you do. We have to worry about you know we have we have that many bad guys that we need to, you know to do you know I just I just I'm really concerned that we're 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 living into we're, we're starting to live in this kind of like. Um, Blade Runner world, yeah. you know now. Um, you yeah, add in the Doc, artificial intelligence and stuff. Oh, it's getting there. Doc, Go ahead, Mike. Sooner or later, it's it's coming to that at, at some point. And and I only say that firmly because I believe that um, the more people that are popping up in this world, I mean, let's face it. In in one hundred years, the population grew by about I believe it was. Five million. I'm sorry, five billion people. One hundred years, and it's only going to double in about another twenty to twenty-five years, I believe. And uh, I mean, it's getting it's going to get to a point where it's it, it there's got to be some sort of structural control, or else it's going to be complete chaos. Now, I'm not saying I don't agree with you on what you're saying about civil liberties. Uh, that that's a that's a great point. I agree with you on that. At some point. There's going to be just a, a a huge overload of 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 a, our population, not only in this country but the world, and uh, it's hard to see how it's not going to come to a point where it becomes a uh, monitoring state, so to speak. Well, I mean, you know, if you if you travel from the east coast to the west coast in car in the United States, there's an awful lot of land. Yeah, you know, in between, you know, the coasts. And it's not that populated, you know, so I see and a lot of the tundra, you know, of, of Canada, you know, isn't populated other than with polar bears. So, I mean, we, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's still a lot of land out there. You're right. You're right. You know, and the way we farm is like archaic, you know, where we just, you know, put, you know, down the, this uh, artificial fertilizer stuff and we're really kind of like ruining the, the topsoil. 
but these you know permaculture concepts of 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 you know uh, really utilizing uh, land you know for 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 farming um, we could easily grow more if we we use th- these newer newer methods. Um, I, I just you know so if if we if we assume the current model of of the way we do things, yeah, we're going to crash and we something has to give. But I believe, you know, coming from an engineering background, I mean, I believe that if there's a problem, there is a solution and we just have to figure it out. And we have also a lot of water. We're surrounded by water. So I'm not too worried that we're going to, you know, die from lack of fresh water because we have technologies to desalinate it. Well, and with- well, before you go on, I got to say one thing there, there, I used to, um, I used to, uh, volunteer at an observatory where I was, uh, under the supervision of an ambassador, uh, for NASA. Um, and she, I used to always ask her these crazy apocalyptic questions like, you know, what do you think is going to end the world? Are we going to get hit by a meteor? Is there going to be a flood? What is it? She said, Based on what scientists agree upon, most scientists agree upon is that there would be an eventual um, need for water, fresh drinking water. And uh, that's what I want to bring up to you. I I think that there's still a possibility that eventually we could go uh, – what's road warrior? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, some of my favorite – you know, I I remember Mad Max, you know, when I was a kid watching that. Great movie. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. Um, and well, it was like three it, with Mel Gibson. It, I think there was three and yeah. then they, they remade it. They remade it, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Mad Max uh, Fury Road, I believe. Another good yeah. movie is called uh, The Road. It's a little bit more uh, modern. It's pretty much oh, like the one with um the one with what's his uh what's his name uh with the actor it's a really sad movie it's a very depressing Is that what you're movie talking about? i sure am oh my god it, it's so depressing i, I saw that it. film yeah um it came out in 2009 lord of the rings um what's his name michael you know what i'm talking about um i know the which, guy which character which character was in the lord guy of the who rings? played uh the second coming king um uh, oh, I know. Are you talking about Robert the long brown hair? Yeah, he's got a, a a really weird Norwegian name I can't pronounce. Anywho, he was in this film called The Road. It's it's so depressing. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Wait, no, that's you gotta not, see it. Yeah, that's not Robert Duvall. I was thinking of a different guy. No, no, yeah, no. This is uh, he's got some weird name. I can't remember what it is. Maybe he's the main in the chat room. He's the main character, right? Yeah, the guy who who uh, he's a Danish who, actor. Uh, and born in is New York. Is he Danish? I thought he was Norwegian. He was born in New York. He's a Danish guy. I, I his name's like Vigo something. Vigo. Yeah, that's yeah, 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 Mortison. Vigo Mortison. Is that his name? I believe that is. Probably. Yeah, it's a, a good film. If no one has seen it, it's really depressing, though. Very. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it, but but I you know Check I, it I out. remember Mad Max. I remember Mad Max, and the whole premise of Mad Max was that it was the oil it was it was kind of based on like an oil embargo, and the world starts to fall right. apart because of it. Um, I mean, the world the world's I, you know, already falling apart at, because of what oil. With Israel, <laughs> Israel didn't have you know fresh water. It had to it, it you know for its agriculture, it had to desalinate everything, but they figured it out. I think the answer for California's water problem is desalination, massive desalination projects. And think about as as we're reconfiguring our society, 
um, and certain, uh, certain jobs start to go away, there's opportunities in other sectors. And I'm not talking about just go work for Amazon, you know, um, uh, warehouse. I'm <laughs> right. talking about literally building, you know, massive projects to make sure everyone in California has fresh water and not have, you know, the, 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 the water shortages that you have. It's totally possible. All they got to do. I mean, we have the technology and it's almost free energy because of the, because of the solar, the, you know, the solar power, power technologies from Tesla. I mean, we're there. It's, it's doable. And the, the federal government, all they have to do is just say, here's the funding. It's really easy. Just similar to what, you know, happened with the big dam projects, you know, back, you know, during the Great Depression. And Paul, do you believe that we need an alternative to oil? Well, I, I trade oil, so I don't want an so you alternative don't want to... oil right now. <laughs> okay. Wrong question. But it, it is, it is damning to me I have that. A disclaimer, you know, I trade oil futures, so I'm not a big fan of like getting rid of oil. Well, here's but the... I see your point. Well, I here's do the... see your point that we are moving towards a, mm-hmm. we're moving towards a, uh, a, uh, lowered, uh, lower dependency on oil. Well, here's the sure. thing. 60% of the global supply of oil lies in the Middle East. And where do you think that money goes to? A, a lot of it goes to funding terrorism. Oh, exactly. That's just exactly. A, that's just a sad fact. I mean, holy that, shit. That's true. That's, that's right. so crazy. Right. And going back to 5G really quickly here, you know, back in like 2013, they were already messing with something uh, called Wi-Vi, and that's something from MIT. So I can only imagine how how much progression has been made since 2013, especially with 5G. Um, why Vi could ba- basically see through walls, basically. Look it up. Well, Paul. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Shit, it's I, crazy. I don't know if it's, I don't know if the NYPD is using that technology or something else. It may be just using very strong x-ray technologies, but, um, they have a truck that roams around primarily by Times Square. It's a, it's a, it's a large, um, you know, uh, uh, like a bank bank truck, you know, where it's carrying money, you know, that kind of size. Uh, and it has this kind of almost like a uh, uh, sen- big sensor on, on, on the top. And it's, it literally can see through buildings. Now, if you're walking by this, because it's, it's in Times Square, it's roaming around and it's, it's tr- looking for bombs. That's what it's, it's trying to detect. But if it's, if you're next to it, it must be doing something to your body if it's using a, you know, a strong x-ray or, or some yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, I, you know, but they don't care because you won't know that they cause damage to you. Yeah, right. You can't prove it. I mean, there's no way you can pr- prove it. They can just say, ah, oh, you know, you just happen to get colon cancer, you know, and, and you know, sides. So yeah, I understand we're living in a world where it's unsafe, but, you know, I, I have the phrase, you know, I'd rather be free and, you know, live with, you know, some degree of, um, of, uh, un- unsafe, of unsafeness instead right. of living in tyranny and, you know, and the government is saying, you know, everything is hunky dory. <laughs> yes. And Paul, by the way, going back to water really quickly here, Jennifer wanted me to ask, does Dr. Paul Cottrell think this virus can get in our water supply too? If our water is recirculated and clean could the water carry the virus well if it i think yes um but if it goes through the proper treatment 
you know, we're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, going through a heat treatment, you're going through a chlorine treatment, um, then you're going to inactivate the virus, quote, kill the virus. Um, so I'm not too worried about the, if it's going through proper treatment. Now, if society starts to break down, we may not have proper treatment of water. That's a concern. Um, right. Now, there was some there was some stories about in I think it's, it was in China or maybe it was in South Korea where people were getting infected. They thought individuals were quarantined in, in apartments, but an individual, uh, let's say the 30th floor was sick. And then it seemed as though uh, later down down the line, the, the 10th floor resident was sick and they were thinking that, well, maybe it had something to do with. The, the piping of the of the building um i don't believe that it like it travels you know you know in the piping system and then you know and, sure. and, and infects people i don't think that's happening i think it was more probable that in that case it was more of that 24 day dormancy before you you start showing symptoms and they just happened to maybe share an elevator 24 days before something like that I think that was more probable. But um, if you treat water properly, it will inactivate the virus um, or, quote, kill the virus. Uh, so I'm not too worried about our, our, our water treatment unless, you know, society starts to break down and we don't have sufficient staff running those plants. But boiling water will definitely kill it. Because ah, heat will kill it. Yeah, that's the next question she asked immediately after. So boiling water will kill the virus, she says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Heat will kill it. Heat will kill and it. And what's interesting? What's interesting for for people that are listening? If I take um, bath, I'll you, kill you it. could well, yeah. Well, <laughs> what will happen? Well, what, what's interesting is that there there is a treatment called heat treatment. Okay, and people have been doing this for for a long time, hundred years or yeah, yeah. for over, yeah over mm-hmm. hundred years. In Japan, if you're sick. You go to the sauna. The sauna, right? Sweat it and out. You, yeah, and you sweat it out. And you and that heat, that, that dry heat when you're breathing it in, will start killing the virus that's in your nasal passages. And you breathe in it deeply, right? And then uh, another way to do it if you don't have access to a sauna is boil some water. And my grandmother showed me this. You boil water, and then you take a, you take a, uh, a towel, uh, put it over your head, you know, like a cloak almost, you know, put it over your head and you breathe in the, um, the, the vapors, the vapor of the steam, right. And breathe it in. And that also is uh, raising the temperature in your, in your nasal passages and, and down into your, into your, uh, uh trachea area. You know what? And wow. you're, it, that actually will help ki- kill pathogens you know that reminds that, a- that reminds me of one of my favorite mma fighters by the name of fedor emilianenko uh, i've watched his training for many many years now and what he always used to do is go into uh what we're talking about here a banya basically a sauna and mm-hmm. that goes back to like the 1920s out there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what about using a vaporizer would that work a vaporizer well that would well that that would you know what is what is called a nebulizer you know, there are, you know, you can, there are, um, uh, class two, uh, medical devices that, that you can put, um, actually, uh, li- liquid, uh, nano silver in. 
and you can breathe that in and it'll get it really deep into your, in, into your, um, into your lungs. Now, and, now I got to ask you neutralize. another question. You just brought up the whole thing about the, the nano silver. Did you ever hear about people who take, uh, uh, I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but it's liquid silver. It's a, in a liquid. It's, it's basically silver who t- people take drops of it and yeah, it's supposed to go through your silver sorry? iodine. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there is multiple versions of this. There's yeah. three main versions. There's what is called colloidal silver, which is an ion. Right. Uh, there is, uh, something called nano silver. Uh, nano silver, um, is silver with four oxygen, oxygen atoms connected to it. So it's a tetrahedral. So if in colloidal silver, it can actually, uh, deposit in your adipose tissue. If you take a lot of it, you know, on a regular basis. Well, for some people, you know, that, that, that is the case. If you take a lot of it and you take it, you know, regularly, um, but not everyone will turn blue if they do that. It, it's a certain <laughs> like group of people that do that. Yeah. But you know, like if they're, they have the Smurf gene or something, right. <laughs> you know, but, 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 you know, but it, it, it can be toxic for the colloidal silver. So that's why they came up with nano silver, which is this tetrahedral, tetrahedral molecule where it's the silver, um, and it has four oxygens. Now, with that, it does not deposit into into adipose tissue or any other tissue, for that matter. It, it's excreted within 12 to 24 hours. Um, but it does have a neutralizing capability to pathogens, um, and it and it helps boost the immune system. Now, uh, the military uses it uh, no for infection. Yeah, they use the gel version, where if you get cut, you you know they put it they they put it to to, to help healing. So what happens is it's killing the pathogens that are within the wound, but it's also stimulating. Um, you, you have adult stem cells in different tissues, but when you cut yourself, you need to recruit um, uh, these stem cells to be able to produce new cells to heal, right? So this actually speeds that process up and the, the military reason- uses it. So so with the nano silver, that's uh, the pH is around 4.6. And then the third version is what is called alkaline structured silver, mm. which is yeah. um, the alkaline is is where the pH is in acidic. It, you know, it's around you know seven point four or more, and that has also the tetrahedral molecule. It's just that it's on the the it's on the alkaline side instead of the acidic side. So there are three basic types, um, but in terms of toxicity, uh, colloidal um, for some people. It, it it can be dangerous for. And if you take a lot of it all the time, um, it will deposit it into your adipose tissue while the other two types um, basically are extruded out of your, out of your urine um, within 24 hours. Hmm. I, I started taking it about, uh, about last February um, and I was, uh, you know, taking it on a regular basis. But when I brought it up to the doctor, my primary care doctor, he told me I was kind of ridiculous for taking it. I, I, um, for years, about three, four years, any time that I felt sick, um, I would take one, one or two full droppers of the colloidal silver, uh, every day for five days, but I never went beyond five days. Gotcha. And so then, it's only a temporary then, thing. Yeah. Yeah. But when I started to realize the benefit, this is before I understood about this nanosilver tetrahedral molecule. 
Um, then I stopped using the colloidal and actually moved towards using the nano product, either the alkaline or the acidic version. Um, I think they're basically the same, but you know, one vendor will, you know, the, the company that, you know, makes the, the acidic says the acidic's better and the, the alkaline vendor says the al- alkaline's better. I personally don't think it really matters, but it, the, the nano or the structured product, um, is much better than the colloidal by far. That's what I'm reading too, that the nano silver it's, is much better overall. Yeah. 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 So if you're, if you're, you know, Mike, if you're using the, the colloidal, um, you know, I, I mean, how, how do you just have like a dropper of it or do yeah, you have yeah. like a, you know, a, a gallon bucket or what? <laughs> how, much <of> this you, <laughs> no. how much of this do you have? I, I ordered, I think it's, uh, shoot. I want to say between 16, it's probably 16 ounces worth. It came in a, in a bottle and it's got one of those droppers in it that's built right in and it tells and you to col- take. It's a colloidal. It's a, it says colloidal silver. You know, you know what? I got to be honest, Doc. I, it's downstairs. I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember what it is. It, it be might honest. be nano. You might have nano or structure. It's possible. I, I ordered it, and I'll tell you how I got it. I actually – I have two doctor friends of mine who uh, I had seen about two years ago, and uh, I had seen them. I was sick. They were like, look. Uh, she said to me, here, take this. She gave me – I think she gave me two full droppers full first. And then she said, you know, if you, if you order it, you know, you take it on a, if you take it on a regular basis, uh, which I was doing for a while, I would take it for, you know, just about every, every day. But then I said, you know what? I should probably stop. And I, I stopped doing it every day. And, um, well, long story short, I, I, I was recommended it, uh, by a, a doctor. So that's why I wanted to get your view on it. It's, it's, it definitely helps the immune system and, um, and 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 helps you fight colds. Um, now, uh, again, if it's the colloidal, I wouldn't be taking it every day because it it can deposit in your adipose tissue. It's um, the nano because it's good. Yeah, the nano or or what is called stru- uh, alkaline structured silver. Okay. Because there's okay. just two versions: one's acidic and one's one's alkaline. But okay. the 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 tetrahedral mo- molecule is the same. So I. Um, you know, definitely. Yeah. And, and that you can take every day and you don't have to worry about, you know, the Smurf effect. Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, you know, and, you know, and people are like saying their immune system is really boosted up. There's other ways to boost your immune system too. I mean, um, for me, I use, I use, um, either the nano silver now, or I have actually both the nano silver or the alkaline structural silver. I, I would only, for me, I would only use it when I'm sick. Um, but for everyday use, uh, to, to boost my immune system, I'm taking so many other things, uh, that I, I, I don't feel as though I need to really add to my, my protocol, right, uh, gotcha. the, the silver product, because I take C60 every day and I, I don't have, um, enough evidence to prove this, but I have a hypothesis that because of the, the way the silver works, if you're taking C60, the C60 is a bigger molecule. It's a, it's a buckyball. It, it has 60 carbons. And um, the, the way the nanosilver is, it, it's possible that the C60 views the – because C60 is an uh, antioxidant. It, 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 it neutralizes what is called ROS or, or reactive oxygen species. 
it may view the nano silver as an oxygen, you know, as an ROS and neutralize it. It wouldn't hurt you, but the effects of taking it and you're taking C60, it may neutralize it. And it's like, you're not taking the, the liquid silver. So for me, because I'm, you know, I've been just doing every day the, the C60 route for antioxidant. I would prefer to do that route than the liquid silver. But if individuals aren't taking C60, one way, you know, would be to, to, uh, you know, to use the, the liquid product. And by the way, but I mean that, but I've been doing the C60 mm-hmm. for a while before I, I, I discovered the, the whole tetrahedral molecule for the nano. Now, doctor Jennifer wanted to know, if you can give us a list of your supplements and she was asking, what is C60? Oh, what I'm taking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I'm, t- I did say, so when I was 16, I started getting into this whole nutraceutical thing, you know, antioxidant thing because of the heart disease that ran in my, in, on my mother's side. Absolutely. Um, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm taking multivitamins. I'm taking zinc, uh, extra vitamin C, uh, D3. Uh, taking uh, K2 with an uh, the, the version of K2 that I'm taking is an MK7. Um, there's an MK4, but I'm, I'm taking the MK7. There seems to be a synergistic effect between D3 and the uh, K2 uh, to reduce inflammation for arteriosclerosis. Um, I take turmeric. Uh, take NMN, which is uh, kind of boosts your mitochondri- mitochondrial health. Um, I do, uh, I take the, uh, DNA force that is, uh, PQQ and the CoQ10 supplement, um, filtered water. So I, I, I use zero water, uh, filtration system. I take, uh, iodine drops. Uh, let's see what else. Um, the nano silver. It's, and, 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 and the, well, that's my daily regimen. What I just said. Now, if I'm, and the C60, the C60 is this, uh, I take it with uh, avocado oil. So C60 is this uh, carbon molecule that's 60 carbons. So it's C meaning carbon, 60 meaning there's 60 of them. And they're arranged in a buckyball. So it's a really, you know, really big molecule. But this is an antioxidant, a very strong antioxidant. And um, and uh, that's my daily regimen. Now, I if see. I'm sick, I would take the, um, the uh, liquid silver. Either the alkaline version or the more acidic version, which is the nano, nano silver, um, whichever I have available. Um, I take extra turmeric for anti-inflammatory and then I take uh, extra zinc and extra vitamin C. Uh, and that's basically what I do if I'm, I'm sick, uh, you know, for a normal cold. You, you now, sound like what, me with all the vitamins. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I put a lot of money in this stuff, and then I oh, I forgot that my I also have a daily regimen for uh, probiotics, pre and probiotics. Um, that's basically what I do. Understood. Um, By the way, Jennifer was also asking about this is like an old remedy. She says about cutting an onion and leaving it out in the air. Um, she's asking. <laughs> my grandmother, my grandmother did this. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think I I think my grandmother used to do this too. Yeah, yeah. No, she, she, not only that, my grandmother also had, uh, uh, garlic around, around the neck. 
Oh my God. She, she was from Romania. She was from Romania. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and so the whole belief was is that, you know, you wear garlic around your neck and the evil spirits would come to Correct. get you. Correct. Yes. <laughs> but, I heard that. <laughs> or at least the vampires would run right, right out. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, um, you know, but curiously, the, seriously, the, what she's asking is about uh, uh, if you slice an onion open, if you're sick and you right. slice an onion open, will it draw the, the virus or the, the germs to it? And also, uh, by putting onions on sick people's feet, uh, would it help them bring down the fever? The again, the old that, I, that I don't that I don't know. But what I never I do heard of do, it. But it sounds very interesting. Well, yeah, what I do do if I really have a bad cold and uh, you know I can't fight it with the nano product or you know or the colloidal product, um, I'll I'll do two things. One is that I take one clove of garlic and I chop it. Chop yes. it up. Have it sit yes. for five minutes and it'll activate enzymes because garlic and, and onions are antiviral. They're, they're antimicrobial. Yes. So, so, and I mix it with kosher salt and I'll chew it and then I'll, I'll swallow it and I'll drink a ton of water. Because, oh, so you good know, for you. Yeah. And then what I'll do is you, you chop up a lot of garlic and fresh grated ginger. Ooh. And you put it in boiling water. You boil it for a while with lemons. Slice one, take one full lemon and slice it where it's uh, the round slice, round slices, and boil it for like twenty minutes, twenty thirty minutes. It'll t- it'll it'll literally taste like medicine. Something's happening with the the acidity, the the, the citric um, acid that's that's in lemons and the um, ginger and the garlic that makes it a, a very potent um, medicine it tastes like medicine it's not it's not going to taste good at all and you put it you put turmeric powdered turmeric in it and uh, maybe even like cayenne pepper and what will happen is when you drink that as a tea and you you eat the the ginger and the garlic um your your body temperature will rise within 20 minutes you feel you literally feel your immune system kicking in Within 20 minutes, and you do that twice a day for like two or three days, and you can almost beat, uh, you know, the, you know, the normal cold or flu season. Oh yeah, you you will kick the shit out yeah, of that virus. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can, you know, make enough of it where you can store it in your refrigerator for a day and just reheat it, and then eat the zest, you know, that's, after that's, you're done drinking the tea. One one thing I I definitely recommend to people is lots of onions, lots of garlic. I take garlic every day, and every time I cook something, I use lots of garlic and lots of onions. Nice. That, that might just be the Italian in me. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I love onions too. Well, it's, you know, it's the social distancing aspects of it. No, <laughs> maybe that's why it's <laughs> no, but. Just a joke. It's true. When, when I back in uh, back in the nineties, I used to work. I was a publicist for, uh, um, believe it or not, for a, a piercing shop. And um, it, it's back then when I started to take garlic cloves, like just straight garlic cloves, crush them up, put them on a piece of bread, and eat them just like that. And boy, let me tell you, I lost a lot of friends. Nobody would talk to me. <laughs> but it worked. I never got sick. I mean, if you roast garlic, you know it just it just melts on but uh, you know melts like butter on on toast. That's garlic, awesome. I love it. And you by know, the way, Jennifer yeah. wanted to know where you're getting nano silver from. Um, I actually sell it. I, I I bought large large amounts of product from from the the two major labs in Utah. 
wow. I, I actually have have stock, not stock. I have, you know, I don't have like money stock. I have like physical product stock. You fully trust it. Yeah, you fully <laughs> trust it though. You know, yes. But uh, I have, I, 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 on my website, I, I sell quite a bit of, of uh, nano, nano product. Understood. Yes, that's something probably all of us should be taking. There's two major, there's, there's two major labs and I, I, I purchase from both of the labs. One that, that's the more acidic version and one that's the alkaline version. But you can get it anywhere. I mean, there's, yeah, you, you, know, can you can get it, get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. You can, yeah, you go to my website. You can get it anywhere. But I, you know, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a big, you know, since, you know, some people really try to promote their products. You know, I'm, I'm more like, you know, people, if they, if they would like to, you know, purchase, you know, from, from me or from someone else, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Buy it anywhere if you want. Yeah. Yeah. What's your website, doc? Oh, it's uh, the dash studio Reykjavik.com. And, uh, yeah, Reykjavik. Reykjavik. All right. So it's R E Y K J A V I K. There you go, Jennifer. So the dash studio dash Reykjavik.com. But if you just type in Dr. Paul Cottrell, um, you can get to my website really easily and see all my research. I've published a lot. I've published a lot of books, a lot of you know, yeah. articles, a lot of stuff on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's very easy to get to my website if you just type my name in the Google system. For sure. You have given us so much information tonight. Thanks so much. Oh, yes. Um, Paul, well, I I'm do. here to help, you know. You're only trying to help. Whole, yeah. Definitely. You know, well, like, you know, Doctor, I do want to thank you very much for being a part of the program. It's been an honor and pleasure, as it always is, when we catch up with you for these uh, COVID-19 updates, these crucial COVID-19 updates, always full of energy and passion and information. Uh, Doctor, you've done a great job informing everyone out there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on the show and just the, the camaraderie of the discussion. I like it a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. No doubt, Paul. We enjoyed having you. For sure. But before I let you go, Paul, any final word to give to the listeners? I want people to kind of realize that we're going to be going in the United States in some dark times here, but that we need to realize that there is light at the end of the tunnel or on the other side of the mountain here. Um, And, you know, not to get too freaked out, the far majority of the people out there will come through this unscathed. They may get the benign version of, of the infection. Um, there is going to be a, a financial component to this that's going to affect everybody. That's probably uh, how much, just as yeah, serious. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we, we do have to work together here, but not to, not to feel despair. People are going to get really, you know, there's going to be a, a whole slew of emotions. There's going to be people that are, you know, afraid, depressed, you know, just totally freaked out, you know, and it's just, we'll get through this. We're not, the, the world is not going to end. We're not going to, you know, we're not, it, it, America will still be around, but we have to be vigilant and make sure that our civil liberties aren't eroded in an encroachment of socialism that I worry about. Um, and, but you have to be engaged. You have to be in, an engaged citizen. You can still be an engaged citizen, even if you're in quarantine. So, I mean, uh, you know, it goes back to the desalination that we were talking about for California. Yes, they're running out of water, but there are solutions where we can provide more water than they they could ever drink. So um, same thing here. You know, there's a problem. 
And we just have to put on our thinking caps and we'll figure it out. We can do this. We can do this. Definitely. Once again, thank you so much, Paul. And I'll talk to you very soon, my friend. Stay safe out there in the Big Apple. Thanks, Doc. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was Dr. Paul Cottrell. Very interesting, as always. Very hard-hitting, full of information yet again here tonight. And my God, uh, Mike, how are you feeling out there? I'm going to go slit my wrists now, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take a long, hot shower right now. Oh, brother. I mean, he was really helpful. He answered a lot of questions, uh, a lot of questions that I didn't even know to ask, like just answered things that you know, were informative. So kudos to uh, Dr. Paul. He's very helpful and very knowledgeable and greatly appreciate him being on the show. Definitely. My goodness, Mike. It's a great show again. Long one. Long show today. <laughs> great huh? show. Four hours. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Well, Mike, I definitely want you to give us your final word before I um, close the show here. Anything you'd like to say, well, my friend? Uh, once again, uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to be your co-host and sidekick. Um, I had a great time as usual. Um, if it, anyone is interested in any of my work uh, as an artist uh, and a musician, uh, you can go to my art website is horribleartwork.com. Uh, and then if you're interested in my music, uh, you can go to um, MikeHideous.com. And Mike is M-Y-K-E. That's MikeHideous.com. And I'm on Facebook at Hideous Mike, M-Y-K-E. Talk about so, being uh, two minutes from midnight, right? Say again? I said talk about being uh, two minutes away from midnight, right? Uh, well, for me, it's about 20 after midnight right now. I was yeah, talking I about your <laughs> I was talking about your song. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that, that too. <laughs> oh, boy. But, no, I had a great time tonight, man. Thank you so much. All uh, right, I buddy. Talk to you soon, Mike. All right. Have a good All night right. and uh, stay safe, brother. Good night, buddy. Well, boys and girls, that was the program for this evening. And I want to thank Jennifer Stein, Dr. Paul Cottrell, and Mike Hideous yet again, all for participating tonight and, and bringing the house down here. I really love all of them very much. Love all of you out there listening and all the international listeners, I really appreciate you too. And remember, if you want bonus content, please direct yourself to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. And that's where you'll find even more content if your heart desires. And of course, you can find the podcast rendition of this on all major streaming platforms out there. I hope you enjoyed another very interesting night yet again. And I know it was pretty creepy yet again, but that's what... That's what goes on here. Nothing is scarier than reality, folks. Remember, stop shaking hands with those strangers out there and start boosting those immune systems. Stay safer, no matter where you are, on this island Earth. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. (laughs) 